I? Okay, thanks everyone for joining this evening. We have none other than James Lindsay. I've actually been looking forward to this conversation all week, James. I feel like it's really timely. Um, there's so much happening in the education system. Um, I, I personally have had some disputes this week with my daughter's school. I think I actually texted you last night some of my frustration with what's going on in the school system. So I know, I feel like you're, you're passionate about just about everything, James, <laughs> but uh, you're particularly passionate about what's happening in schools with this social emotional learning and the Marxification of, as, as you call it, of education. So where do we want to start? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, everything is wrong with education. And, I, you know, I was actually just thinking about that earlier today. Um, I got a little bit tired doing a bunch of stuff this afternoon. I thought, you know, why am I the, why am I into everything? Like, why am I every subject? But okay. Um, I do spend a lot of time on this education stuff, uh, social emotional learning, kind of rolling in with the Marxification of education, which, you know, I wrote a book about that, which exposes Paula Ferrari and uh, critical pedagogy, which is this fusion of critical theory and uh, educational theory. Um, but I actually think maybe we should start in a sort of upside down way and talk about the world that's being built and what the purpose of education is and how they've seized not just education itself, but the purpose of education, if that suits you. Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, um, so when you study Marxists and their approach to education, especially through a very frustrated period that they had in the 1970s, so I'm talking like Herbert Bowles, is it Herbert? No, it's something Bowles and, and Herbert Gintis. Maybe I've got their first names messed up. But anyway, Bowles and Gintis are the last names. And these were two Marxists that wrote a lot about education in the, the 1970s, kind of when Marxist thought was still very Marxist. It hadn't yet started to bend into what we would see as kind of the progenitor to woke and they're very frustrated by something that they call the problem of reproduction. And this sounds like we're about to get into Planned Parenthood, but we're not. It is not the reproduction of people. It is the reproduction of society. And so kind of what they're lamenting is we have all this great Marxist theory. We know the better way. And the problem is, is that even if we can get Marxist theory brought into the schools, even if we can maybe redwash education, what we have to still do in order to keep the government happy, to keep the parents happy, to keep everybody happy, if it's a private school, you know, to keep the people paying for the school happy, is that we have to produce an education system that prepares workers for the future economy. Mm -hmm. But that economy has continuity. And so what you end up doing is preparing little capitalists to know how to do math, to know how to read, to know how to write, to understand science, to understand history to have some kind of cultural context in which they understand themselves. And those people are going to go out into the world. And if they aren't employable, people are going to have a backlash and education is going to get straightened back out. So you have this problem where the process of education reproduces society because you have to use education because of its purpose is to prepare young minds in particular. I guess you can have adult learners too, but it's to prepare particularly young minds to be participate uh, participatory actors in the economy that they're going to inherit. And the problem is the only way you can do that successfully is to raise little capitalists. So you can never get socialism off the ground through the education system. And the education system therefore reproduces the society generation after generation. And thus it's called the problem of reproduction. And so they understand this. You have to appreciate, I'm going to kind of we could talk about how Paulo Ferreri creates the opening and maybe we'll get back to that. 
the opening to circumvent that problem, critical pedagogy becomes a solution to the problem of edu- uh, of reproduction by stealing out the contents of education. But I want to sidestep that for a moment and, and focus in on it from a different angle. And that angle is by the mid-1970s, Marxist theorists working in education understood very, very clearly what the purpose of education is, and it is to prepare people to fit into the future economy. So what we're dealing with right in the world is this very intricate problem. We have these large entities like the United Nations, like the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, huge NGOs like the the Open Society Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, maybe even the Koch Foundation to some degree, that are all very interested in shaping the future economy. So they know what the economy, the workplace of the future looks like. They write about it endlessly. They say that you know the worker of the future is going to need social skills. They're going to need to be emotionally flexible. They're going to be jobs. We don't even know what they are. We can't even imagine what the workplace of the future might look like. So we have to focus on social and emotional skills, soft skills, adaptability, in particular working with other people. They've got to have high emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, so that they can fit into the workplace of the future. Now, never mind the fact, stop paying attention to what's happening in their right hand while they describe what's going on in the left. Never mind the fact that they're the ones designing the future economy. Mm-hmm. So what they've, what, what we actually face in education is a staggering problem which is that they've actually captured supply and demand in a way, both sides of the of the supply and demand function in a way to where they were in a really exquisite trap. I don't know a better word for it than exquisite um, because what they're now doing, and this has been a march that has been, we'll just say bipartisan because it really started, I mean, I guess it really started with Bill Clinton, but the biggest initiative, educational initiative that got the ball rolling in this direction from the United States government perspective would be No Child Left Behind, which was a George W. Bush program, followed by Common Core, which was an Obama program, followed now, followed at the end of the Obama era through what was called the Every Student Succeeds Act, which opened the door to the social emotional learning revolution that they very carefully laid in to kind of take off in 2019, 2020, uh, especially in parallel and underneath the auspices of the pandemic. And so what we have now, though, is a shift to tracking and teaching, not to the test, but to something they call competencies. And this is sometimes called competency-based education or competency-driven education. And the idea is actually that we're going to create these measurable things like competencies, that maybe it's your competence in math, or maybe more granularly, it's your competence in algebra or calculus or trigonometry, or maybe it's your competence in history, or more granular would be U.S. history, world history, Western civilization, Asian history, something like this. But maybe it's non-academic as well. Maybe it's your competence in social skills and relationship building, responsible decision-making in sustainable development goal goal three or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's understanding how to cure hunger. Maybe it's getting environmentally active. And maybe it's these EQ skills. And what they've built out is a system by which the employability and maybe even the full participation in society in the future will depend upon the competencies that land in your digital portfolio attached to a digital ID. So if you don't have the right competencies, maybe you're not socially adept enough to be allowed into a concert hall. Maybe you are suspected to be the kind of person who would be a problem. So you have to go get your you know, responsible decision-making skill up before you'd be allowed to enter a, confer- a, a, concert, a concert hall or any other thing. You can kind of start to imagine how this becomes the basis for a social credit system and a system of surveillance and control. If you want to be able to get into anything, especially a job or a university, you've got to have the requisite competencies, which... I don't know who gets to define them, but I can tell you it's not us. And then it doesn't matter whether you go, school choice becomes kind of this irrelevant point. Homeschooling actually even becomes this kind of irrelevant point because if you, and this is why the trap is so exquisite, uh, if you want your child to grow up, to be able to participate in society, to be fully enfranchised, 
to be able to uh, get a good job, to get a job at all maybe, uh, to go to a university or a good university, they're going to have to get the competencies. And this new model of education, this competency-based model is kind of key. So where does social-emotional learning fit into this literally social credit system built out of educational competencies? Well, that's where the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015 steps in. And the Every Student Succeeds Act has the provision that says we have to start tracking and measuring non-academic competencies if you want to receive federal funding for your educational system, at least public schools, maybe all schools. So Certainly under these ESA programs, they're presenting the threat for this to reach into all schools uh, it becomes imminent. And so the idea is going to be that these non-academic competencies become kind of a centerpiece of education and social emotional learning becomes a facilitator to teach non-academic competencies. Now, if we could trust these people, which P.S., spoiler alert, you cannot, we cannot, we should not, we must stop. If we could trust these people, maybe something like teaching children responsible decision-making is something we could discuss a school encouraging. I don't think that that is correct because I think it takes away a key part of the parental right to guide the education and shaping of the child. Um, your children are your children. They are not the state's children, and the, it doesn't matter if the state has a stake in your child or not. They don't get to trample your rights with your child because of that. Maybe if we could trust them, though, we could say, well, the school could do some stuff in responsible decision-making, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills. These are the five competency areas under CASEL's program, the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning. But we can't. We know that those five competency areas are actually going to be defined specifically in terms of whether your responsible decision-making supports sustainable development goals, whether your relationship skills fit in with a DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion initiative in particular, are they inclusive? Are you making decisions? Are you navigating your relationships in a way that promotes diversity and equity? Are you always encouraging inclusion? Are you bringing along the concept of making sure everybody feels like they belong, where all of these things are interpreted through the woke lenses that we're all familiar with? The power dynamics are the big excluder, they're the big shamer, they're the big problem. And so you can kind of picture that we are in this really exquisite trap. A lot of us are thinking of education from the bottom up. We're thinking, well, we got social emotional learning. It's being taught through an equity, inclusion, and sustainability lens. It's brainwashing our kids so that they'll go out and make the world the way that it's supposed to be. And they forget there's a top-down part to this too, which is that they're building out the economy. So in a sense, what they're doing, we know that a, a, a round peg has to go into a round hole. So to go into a square hole. And what they're actually doing is they're building out the program, it's called social emotional learning, so that they can carve the peg. And meanwhile, they're also carving the board with the holes in it, so with ESG and sustainable development goals. So they're carving the pegs in the holes so that they can figure out which kid gets shaped into what thing to plug into which holes they want to have. In other words, in a complete command style economy, very much like what you see in China. Um, and perhaps tied into a social credit system. And so this is a very exquisite trap that we're in with education, except that it's also a very fragile trap for them because it's all based on us accepting the competency-based approach that identifying specific competencies rather than allowing, say, employers, colleges, and universities to make organic decisions about who they want to hire based off of, you know, kind of much less specific data, much less specific information, kind of more intuitive, tacit knowledge kind of decision-making like we've used for you know all of human history. What we find ourselves in, though, is this very exquisite problem where there's a top-down and bottom-up component. They're building the, the economic units, your children, to fit into the economic board that they're also building at the same time. And the competency-based model becomes the mechanism by which they're, they're carving both pieces of that at the same time. 
Now, there are other tendrils to this, but I want to just ramble. For example, they'll, you'll hear that, that um, social-emotional learning as the tool to facilitate this, not only is it designed to overcome the cognitive dissonance of stealing your children's education, to brainwash them and putting them in emotional binds and putting the weight of the world. You know, AOC told us we have 12 years until climate change destroys us all, and so the children have to learn to deal with that problem and solve it for us. That's a big pressure to put on a kid, um, tell them they have no future, they have no hope. But they say it's evidence-based and data-driven all the time. And those are manipulative phrases. They are not what you think they mean. Evidence-based means that they are gathering the evidence about your child so that they can tailor the next round of the brainwashing based on the evidence of where your child actually is so that it's more appropriate to your child's psychological profile, intellectual and emotional competencies that they've already earned or the ones that they're struggling with, the emotional reactions, the physiological reactions that they have. They're literally monitoring you know, like skin conductance, heart rates, breathing rates, eye tracking in some cases to find out what the kid's stress out about to overcome their cognitive dissonance and so on. This is the evidence-based side on one part. And the data-driven side is actually not only are they using this data, but they're gathering it to, and also this is a not only, there are three pieces here. The second one is that they're gathering this data to pass it through an equity filter to say, this is where the school is lacking. This is where the child is lacking. This is where we need more of this to justify more of their implementation. But then most importantly, what they're actually doing is using that data to figure out what the economy of the future actually has to look like so they can plug everybody into it. They have to figure out what the what the holes look like. So they're carving the peg in the hole at the same time so they can have their perfectly planned economy, perfectly planned political system and plug all of our little darlings into it after they've been shaped and the hole that they will be plugged into will be shaped to them as well. And you can see that this is, a, like I said, quite an exquisite nightmare. But SEL becomes the excuse then to gather the data to know how to build the perfect tyranny that will trap us all. And that's really scary. And we haven't even got into the weird stuff. I was going to say, and and how do you argue with the this, right, when, when everything is framed in a way of, well, listen, it's for social, it's for emotional, it's it's painted in a light um, that is supportive of, of the child, right? So it's, it's a sleight of hand in the way that they um, present this to you. I know I personally have gone to the school and in the last week, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in and they say, well, this is, you know, and they say it in a very soft manner. This is about a child's social and emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. how do you deal with that? It's very simple. You ask the oldest skeptical question in the book, literally the oldest one, because they're talking in vague generalities. They're doing this intentionally. Oh, it's about social well-being. It's about emotional this. It's about social relationships. We just want to help people make better decisions. We want a place where everybody feels like they belong. That's vague. So you ask the most, the, the oldest, most penetrating, skeptical or critical question. Literally, we're going to turn some critical theory back on them. Mm -hmm. You ask the key critical question, to put it in the, in, in the original Latin, qui bono, who benefits? Mm -hmm. So you're going to work on the child's social and emotional skills as defined by whom and for what purpose. That's the question that has to be asked every single time. Who's going to decide what responsible decision making looks like? Me as a parent or you as the institution? And what they're going to have to admit is that they're experts and you're not. So you have to be boxed out. And with Glenn Youngkin, we saw exactly what happens when they do that in public. Okay. It's, it's their death knell. You have to bring it back to the same point over and over and over again. All this sounds great. That's what you would say. All this sounds great. Who defines the terms? Who defines what it means 
to have self-management. Self-management according to whom and for what? What are the purposes? What does a self-managed child look like? Who sets the parameters? What does a self-aware child look like? Does a self-aware child look like somebody who's aware that his gender might change right out from under his feet? If perhaps he's introduced to a queer concept or a drag queen or a pornographic book in the library, what do you mean by these terms? And more importantly, because they're going to just give you some soft-spoken saccharine bullshit, the real question is, who benefits from making these definitions? Who gets to set them? Why them? Why not me as the parent? Why is the raising of my child going to be outsourced to you? Why do you get the authority to make these decisions? Why do you get to claim that you know how to raise my child better because you've got some computer algorithm because you're reading their their thoughts with, with freaking surveys after surveys after penetrating, you know, uh, I like eye tracking software and all this other stuff. All this. Can, why is there a QR code on my kid's desk? Who's using this data? Who benefits from it? And, th- th- and I hate to be so, um, I don't know, coarse. Really, it's so prosaic, but it's absolutely true that that's the question you have to ask. Right. Who defines these things? Oh, responsible decisions according to the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. Why is my child a United Nations representative all of a sudden? Who decided right. that? When did we vote on it? Those are the questions you have to ask to pull it back out of the vague, saccharine, often, just to use another word with lots of syllables, why not soporific? You know, you listen to these people, you just want to either kill them or go to sleep, um, one or the other, depending on <laughs> what they're saying and whether you understand it or not. The only way to pull it back out of that is to drag it either into specifics or into more importantly who's defining that how's it how's it defined and to you got to go full full pit bull on that when you latch on to how's it being defined they're going to give you some answer and it's not going to be good enough right i mean i'm thinking of my friend tiffany justice right now from monster liberty every time i hear her get on one of these issues and she talks to a politician every time i've been at a table with her talking to a politician they give some politician the answer he's like that's not good enough we don't trust you anymore we need a better answer, more clarity. And you just, you're going to have to stay on it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Lynn. Oh, sorry. Quick question. So I know that, you know, we see SEL and we we say, okay, school boards and parents are trying to fight it and they kind of are more familiar with what it is now, but we know it's being integrated into school curriculums in a very covert way. So it's not like they're setting aside 30 minutes a day, like, oh, let's focus on SEL, but giving kind of the ideology into different academic subjects like science and math. And I know you've given a great example before on like, you know, a simple second grade math problem on like calculating how many miles it takes to get to the park, which really is basically a setup to initiate conversations with students around socioeconomic status or from, you know, a race lens or sustainability. Can you kind of break down how it's being kind of woven in and embedded into other subjects covertly, um, not, not so obvious? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, so what I talked about so far is kind of the big picture theft of education, the theft of the purpose of education as a, in, in, the, in the kind of macro scale. So, like that's where the workplace of the future is being redefined so that they circumvent the problem of reproduction by making it so that we have to produce the economy of the future through the program. Okay, so that's the macro theft of education. But I said that, you know, Paulo Ferreri's method becomes very relevant, and that's the micro theft of education. That actually is the nuts and bolts. And so you are correct. They are frequently not setting aside social emotional learning time. It's not like art class. When I was in fourth grade, I remember we had the art cart that came around, you know, once a week, and we had art class for 30 minutes you know some poor art instructor with a with a cart and we'd have to draw like stupid pictures or whatever and she had limited supplies in it but it's not like that it's not 30 minutes a week or 30 minutes a day on the end of the you know right before lunch or at the end of the day to kind of orient kids emotional emotional and social you know subjects or to cover 
I mean, granted, there is a parenting crisis right now, too. <laughs> Kids don't know how to act. And so um, it's not just there to kind of like say, this is how you should be a responsible human being, uh, which again, qui bono, according to who and for whose benefit. But um, what you're actually seeing is the what they call systemic implementation. So math class is taught through an SEL lens. History class is taught through an SEL lens. Reading class is taught through an SEL lens and so on. All the courses are taught with SEL woven, even gym class, even lunch, if they can do it. In fact, they want parents to be doing SEL constantly at home as well. And in some places, they're they're initiating parent training to get the parents on board with SEL. So that it's a constant immersive environment for the child and the social emotional um, environment that they're trying to create, uh, which is sustainable, equitable and inclusive. And so what you actually have is, as, as you know, you alluded to this example, which I still give credit again, Jennifer McWilliams told me about this. She has a wonderful Expel SEL program. People should go check her out, Jennifer McWilliams Consulting. Um, she's quite good on the issue. She was a teacher in Indiana. They were, she was going through teacher trainings in SEL. She was aghast at what she was seeing. And this was one of the examples. Johnny's riding in the car with his mom and dad on the way to the amusement park. The park is 50 miles away. They've already driven 30 miles. How much further is there to go? Simple second grade uh, arithmetic word problem. And rather than solving the word problem, the teachers are instructed through social emotional learning. So this is how it gets woven into the math lesson. They're instructed to engage the students, make the students interested in wanting to answer the question. Like math isn't interesting. Everybody knows that. Like, fine. So you're going to get the kids excited by talking about the amusement park. Oh, kids, how many of you have ever been to an amusement park? Notice we're not talking about math at all anymore. We're not trying to get to the bottom of making kids actually interested in math. They're going to talk about their favorite subject themselves. Who's ever been to an amusement park? Some kids raise their hand. Some kids don't. Well, why is it that some kids get to go and some kids don't? And they're instructed to look for political operate, op politically operative responses like some kids can't afford it, at which point they have a discussion of some sort or another about socialism. And they're primed to ask, well, how could we make it so everybody could afford to go? Well, rich people could pay for it or whatever. And they're primed to get the kids to generate the answers to questions that lead them kind of uh, Pied Piper-like towards socialism. Or maybe it's one of the kids says, well, my parents won't let me go until I'm older. And then that becomes a prompt to have a political discussion, a social and emotional discussion about political authority of the parents should the parents have authority should should maybe the school organize a field trip to the amusement park should we or you know should we subvert the parents will to have and you can just picture where it goes but then you have all these other things of course if somebody brings up if you know different people raise their hand hey kids did you happen to notice that more white kids raise their hand than black kids about being able to go and now you get to have a critical race theory conversation maybe you focus on mom and dad instead of amusement park does everybody have a mom and dad to ride to the amusement park with? i only have a mom feminist conversation or maybe they bring up the idea of um well, I have two moms, and now you're having the sexuality conversation. This is a very innocuous question, and look at what you can do. You bring up the idea of a car, now you're having sustainable development goals, environmentalist questions. Is it good to pollute like that? Should we pollute to go have fun? What would be better? Imagine if there was a train to the amusement park. All the kids could take straight from the school. Yay! And at some point, you realize you never actually learned any math. You never actually solved the math. The, the thing that was supposed to engage the kids never led to actually doing math. And so what you will see is children who become very politically awakened or conscious, as it were, who can't do any academic, they have no academic mastery, they can't achieve in any academic subject, which turns out to be exactly what we see in our children. And this is why Paulo Freire becomes relevant. When, when I, I wrote The Marxification of Education, I was I, I thought it was very important, and I made it the part of the subtitle, I almost made it the title, The Theft of Education, are the last four words of the subtitle, Paulo Freire's Critical Marxism and the Theft of Education, is what I called it. And the um, theft of education, the micro theft of education that Paulo Freire 
allowed for was exactly that. He said that the point of education is a political education. The point of literacy is to achieve political literacy, not to achieve actual literacy, which is irrelevant and might reproduce the existing society. You might allow a peasant or a child to learn to read or write and go off and get a good job that just justifies the system he already is oppressed by while abandoning his friends in the slums who weren't so lucky as to be able to achieve. And so he becomes the oppressor and you teach them to desire to become the oppressor blah, 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 more analysis like we're familiar with. But what he said is that the academic lesson or the reading lesson or the literacy lesson or whatever subject, in his words, becomes a mediator to political knowledge. It becomes an excuse that you use to engage the students in a political conversation that's generative of the experiences in their lives that you then pass through a filter or a lens, which is exactly why that question of who benefits and for what becomes core. Social emotional learning isn't teaching social emotional skills in a neutral way, it has right answers, inclusion, sustainability, equity, and that filter or that lens gets applied every time. Same thing here. The math lesson now has a lens applied to it. So the purpose of the math lesson becomes to have a conversation that prompts the kids to talk about equity, inclusion, sustainability, whichever one of these topics, maybe it's youth mental health and resilience. So they can all think that there's something wrong with them and that they need help. And then, oh, by the way, we have a club after school for people who are struggling with this or that or think they might be bisexual or gender nonconforming. And we also have, uh, you know, a gender affirming or a, you know, telehealth. Oh, you might have ADD. We have a doctor you can go to. With it. You don't have to tell your parents. Don't worry. And so they've wormed all this stuff in under this excuse. So there's a macro theft of education where they've redefined the purpose of education to circumvent the problem of reproduction. And that's facilitated by a micro theft of education where what they've done is they've They've redefined what it means to engage the subjects, to use them as mediators or excuses for generative political conversations with the children. And P.S., if you actually go read the Drag Queen Story Hour academic paper that explains what the purpose of that is, they say that the Drag Queen and his performance is, in fact, a generative opportunity for the children to induce them into alternate modes of kinship or a preparatory introduction into alternate modes of kinship and queer ways of living and being. So they know what they're doing with this. But the whole point is to create excuses to have political type conversations on woke terms while looking like you're offering a real academic lesson. So if you, the parent, were to call the school, call the teacher, call whoever and say, I want to see the curriculum, you see that word problem and you think there's nothing wrong with this. But what you don't know is that the teachers are being trained in the social emotional learning training programs to have those political conversations using that word problem as a set of excuses to have them. And that's ultimately systemic SEL. And you see where it becomes that the entire education becomes a giant excuse for a brainwashing and propaganda campaign. And that's also very concerning. And like I said, we still haven't even got to the weird stuff. Right. Um, but what James, do you do to circumvent that, which is the natural question, is, I mean, short of like actually watching how things are being taught, which you find out they're going to get real cagey about that. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I actually think that we people have to pull their kids out of the schools. Um, I actually think that parents are going to have to take over. We're going to have to fight the competency model and we're going to have to educate our own kids until we can fix the schools uh, because this is insidious. It is already implemented. It's probably in all 50 states. I think it is in all 50 states. Um, and it's going to be hard to pull back out. A lot of money, a lot of effort, and a lot of law has already been laid to put this in. Um, but ultimately, you're going to have to intervene with your children a lot. It's not an easy fix. There's no sidestepping it. And if the competency-based model persists, you're not going to find a solution in a different school. They're going to do the same thing because that's where your competencies get defined. Right. And James, I was going to jump in and say, I actually think that we've somewhat gotten past the point of it being um, opaque. I think that it's now 
quite overt when we're seeing kids come home with things. Like I've seen kids come home with papers from a government class saying things like, do you like the environment? If you do, you're probably a Democrat. Um, so it seems to me that we're now at a point where, again, this is just incredibly overt. Uh, in California, we're seeing things like uh, I- ideas being presented uh, to pass legislation that says that math is racist and therefore you cannot correct children's answers in math because that's that's racist to do so. Yeah, I mean, they've gone kind of whole hog. They are hiding it slightly better, especially in, in conservative states or states with conservative majorities in the legislature. But um, they it, it has become quite overt. They know that they're very far down along their pathway. Now, this is a, just to put a very fine point on this. This isn't new. The only thing new about it is that they're using social emotional learning as the, the tool and that they're using this kind of pop psychology, youth mental health as the excuse but this is exactly the same kind of thing that happened in, in Mao Zedong's revolutionary high schools, revolutionary uh, uh, universities to make sure that the Red Guard would be built out of his for his cultural revolution. This was uh, it's, it's the you know, we often hear about the Hitler youth, but this was youth. And he built education basically along the same model. That model has a formula that Mao was very proud of. He called it unity, criticism, unity. Uh, so you in, inculcate in people a desire for unity by, first of all, making it feel like there's a disunion in the situation. There's some you know, underlying issue. Maybe there's racism hiding within the classroom that keeps us from all being unified. Don't you guys want to be unified? Maybe there's sexism and homophobia. Maybe we just haven't created an inclusive enough environment where everybody feels like they belong. Don't you want to make it better? So you create the desire for unity, and then you start to bring up the process of criticism and self-criticism and literally struggle, as they call it in Chinese, to bring up Pipan uh, Dojang, in, in literally in Mandarin, to, which means critical struggle, uh, to bring average person in the classroom or the DEI training or whatever, if it's at work, into the belief that they are not living up. They are the reason there's not unity. Their attachment to racism, their attachment to bourgeois values, their attachment to individualism, their attachment to, you know, being selfish instead of an environmentalist or whatever is the problem that's preventing the unity. And then unity lies on the other side of accepting all the doctrine. This is not a new formula. The only thing new about it is that it's coming from the social emotional learning perspective that talks about these kind of pop psychology concepts that come from a really weird organization, ultimately, where Castle was born and social emotional learning was literally born, um, which is called the Fetzer Institute. And the Fetzer Institute is a thing in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was created by John Fetzer. He was an occultist openly, like quite clearly. Um, and his, his the Fetzer Institute is, is dedicated to the idea of marrying together, to fusing together science and new age spirituality into one thing. And then in it's, it's later years of John Fetzer's life, so the early years of social emotional learning, social emotional learning emerged three or four years after John Fetzer died. Uh, but in the latter years of Fetzer's life directing his his very weird organization, he started to get very interested in education. And he started to get very interested in particular in a book from one of his favorite occult authors by the name of Alice Bailey. The book is called Education in the New Age. And what does she say education should look like? Well, it's not just a fusion of science and spirituality like John Fetzer was into. It is, in fact, she says that the educator of the future will be much more psychologist than he is today. And then she says that there's going to be a science of right human relations that is figured out and determined. And that's going to be applied not as a separate 
pathway of learning, but will be woven into all of the academic subjects like reading and math and, and philosophy and history and so on. Uh, so it'll be integrated to all. And it's, it's exactly the trajectory that Castle has taken over the past, um, I guess that was 94, 95 when it was born, kind of both two consecutive conferences and two consecutive years. Um, that's exactly the tack Castle has always taken over the past 30 years. Uh, and that's exactly what they're implementing on our kids. So it, it becomes this kind of cult instruction that's Maoist, but not explicitly like com like Mao knew he was doing Leninism. He right. knew it was Marxism. This is maybe some people know, but it's much more abstruse and it's much more mixed in with this really weird kind of spirituality, new age, holistic. In fact, it's it cobbled itself off of a thing called whole child education, which was created by James Comer in the 1960s. Um, not good. But the goal becomes to teach not just the child academically, but to teach the whole child in his mental, physical, and spiritual uh, growth and development, and also social development, and thus the justification for so-called social-emotional learning. There's, It's like this is no matter how many – if you imagine like a field full of rocks that's social-emotional learning, and every time you pull up a rock, there's like a monster under it. No matter how many rocks you pull up, the monsters just keep getting worse. There's, there's, there's nothing redeeming about this um, the more we talk about it. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I've seen things to your point where it's this this very strange, um, insidious way that it's presented. Today, uh, I had my daughter, interestingly enough, in an AP government class was answering questions. And one, one of the questions was, do you think that Donald Trump brought together the American people? And then, the, of course, conversely, the question was asked, do you think President Biden is bringing together the American people? And it was such an odd question for a government class. Uh, and, and by the way, I should also say, I think government is one of the most important classes that we can teach, uh, especially the high school age population. And it's, it's clearly being used as a propaganda brainwashing indoctrination uh, course, uh, rather than teaching about very important aspects of the way this government, this country was founded and how our government actually functions and the beauty of, 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 the original concept of, of our, excuse me, of our government. So, um, and I know Jeffrey Tucker just joined. I'm not sure if he'll have any questions or not, but Jeffrey uh, runs the Brownstone Institute. So uh, the, the other thing that I felt was, thought was interesting too was it asked, um, do you think that the American people have trust in institutions like the CDC, the NIH, the FDA? And again, to your point, these are all designed uh, with very specific intent not that it's designed in terms of education. Oh, yeah. And those kinds of questions, not only do they prime the ability to have dialogue in the classroom that is then going to be shaped by the instructor who we know are the instructors are skewing more and more. And even their teacher training manuals are skewing more and more to there being very right answers about those questions that are obviously the leftist program. But not only are they designed to do that, but they're also designed to gather that data. So your child answers those questions, and now they know where your child sits on those kinds of issues. They know what your child thinks sort of about President Trump and President Biden. I threw up a little in my mouth when I said President Biden. Pardon me. Um, they know what... They know what your child thinks about the CDC and trust in these large institutions, the NIH. They might know about connections, depending on what the questions are, WHO. I mean, you can go down the list of all kind of these big organizations. They are learning about your children, which 
depending on how that data is gathered, if it's gathered on paper, it might be a little difficult for them to code it all in or put it into the bubbles. They can run it through the, the Scantron or whatever they call these things these days and can gather it very quickly. But if it's done digitally, which most of these surveys are, they can very quickly create political and social and even personality battery uh, or inventory kind of profiles of your kid based on this. And they're training your child to answer those kinds of questions all along. Meanwhile, they're also training your child not to ex not just to not learn American civics in their classes dedicated to American civics, but in fact to expect not to learn American civics in their class at Secure Twitter. Because we talk about current events. We talk about President Trump or President Biden. We talk about what AOC said and how many times she died on January 6th. We talk about all the important stuff. We don't <laughs> talk about that old. And so you get the sense that, or it's not even the sense, you, you, you can see that what they're doing is they're training your children to obediently hand over information to authorities. And you have to ask, what, what is that information being used for beyond the fact, like, is it just idle curiosity? Is it just a fun, engaging question? No, not so much. Um, it, it, these are, as you said, very purposed questions. And I'll point out on the question about President Trump bringing together the American people versus President Biden bringing together the American people. And again, let me wash out my mouth. Um, we have... If, I don't know how many people remember this because it's actually a gigantic culture war victory. None of us really chalk up. We, we don't realize some of the things we win because they just go away. But the Biden administration started off before the election, but then especially right after the election with unity, 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 unity. We're going to unify the American people. So that was a big narrative push that they made that the left believed that Donald Trump was divisive mm -hmm. and Joe Biden is unifying. And here we are. Being seeing our children being polled on how well that narrative landed on them. But again, we go back to that U word, unity, and the formula of the mouth before it was unity, criticism, unity. So when I say it was a massive culture war win, you literally had the Biden administration initiating a Maoist formula at the beginning of his administration. And it fell flat because people realized it wasn't going to go. But the survey questions are now probing your children how well it reached into the younger generation because, as has been said historically, and I won't really say by who, what are you, you shall pass away and we will have your children, <laughs> Adolf Hitler. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you ha these things are very purposed. And social-emotional learning, again, becomes a pretext by which a government class becomes about that. So. That you brought up something that's really fascinating, and I, I did a podcast a while ago with uh, someone who who's done a lot of studying around pre World War II um, Hitler and 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 some of his tactics and how he utilized the education system to really break down the nuclear family. And there's a lot of parallels between what we're seeing right now and those tactics that were used. And uh, someone asked a question, and I think it's you can tie it into, I guess your response to what I just said as it relates to the tactics that were used. But obviously, the, the, the teachers that are in this system, they've clearly gone through some type of training. And what does that look like? I mean, to a certain extent, I sometimes wonder if these teachers even understand what they're doing, or if they um, are just so brainwashed themselves, for lack of a better term. My strong suspicion, and it's based largely on the language I hear leftist activists and consultants use, uh, is that the vast majority of the teachers do not know what they're putting in. Um, the handful of conversations I've had with teachers indicate that they often do not know what they're participating in, um, that they have also been brainwashed. When they go through their education classes, their continuing education or professional development classes, their certification courses and all of these things, um, the various trainings and, and whatever that are required for maintaining their job, they get that same saccharine 
you know, soft, positive, vague nonsense that you get when you go ask about what's really going on. They don't get told that this is a nefarious thing. Now, we can tell that when I said I get that from their language because you there have now been three or four different states have leaked videos where you have one of these consultants working usually at the level of, you know, almost a State Department of Education or something like this, uh, but high level working with various school districts, and they use the word very intentionally, and this is consistent across the different states, so it's probably consistent across all states. They use the term co-conspirator as, as something that they get a small number of within each school, and those are teachers and faculty and administrators who do know that they're violating the law, who do know that they're implementing something nefarious, and that are willing to do so anyway, literally in their own words. So what you can surmise from that, because they say it's a small number of them, is that the majority don't know that they're doing it. The majority have been told that this is just, in fact, this is the title of Gloria Ladson Billings, who created Culturally Responsive Education, Culturally Responsive Pedagogy in 1995. She wrote three papers. One's toward a critical race theory of education, because it's not in schools. One is uh, toward a critically, what is it, a, criti a culturally responsive pedagogy, or a theory of culturally responsive pedagogy. And the third one, the title is like a quote, right? And then there's a subtitle that says the working parts of it. But the quote is, but that's just good teaching. And so they're framing it out that this is the proper way to teach, that you have to engage the students. It's all about engagement. And we have to engage the topics of today. And the, the youth mental health crisis, all these kids are demoralized. They've all had this COVID and they have you know all these problems of racism. They don't know about their future. There's environmental problems under so much stress. This is just what you have to do to engage and help the kids. You have to get them interested. We have to use culturally relevant education to get them interested. The topics that they're dealing with, these are extremely important. Nobody can avoid politics. So we need them to get critically conscious on this. So they're actually learning that this is what good teaching actually looks like, as opposed to academic mastery of basic skills. And so I think they are getting just as brainwashed and in many cases think that either this is just what teaching is, or in other cases, they think that this is a superior method to teaching. If you open the book, it's called Handbook of Social Emotional Learning in Research and Practice. One of the chief, uh, the forward, I forget, uh, um, Elias is one of the chief editors, I think, or at least one of the chief contributors to this book, um, Maurice Elias, uh, not not the one that, that's associated with the Clintons. Um, that's a different Elias Mark, is that his name? But not him. Maurice is this guy's name. And so uh, it doesn't matter. But the point is, Linda Darling Hammond writes the foreword to this. She's one of the she's a. Uh, executive emerita from uh, Castle. She was one of the longest time Castle people. Uh, she was on the Biden and Obama education transition teams. She was one of the lobbyists to help get ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, passed in 2015. She has helped deploy cult, uh, social emotional learning everywhere. She says that social emotional learning is Freirian in its orientation and that it is humanistic and transformative in the way that he meant those, which are explicitly Marxist. And to be a socially and emotionally competent school means to be Freirian in this way that's in the forward. And then in the first chapter, they show this stupid graphic of two schoolhouses, one that has this kind of jumble of boxes, some of which are sticking out the side. There's lots of empty space. Some are sticking out the roof. It's all disorganized. And it says things like social skills and emotional this and this and that and the other thing on all the different boxes. And they say, this is what's happening in every school. Social emotional learning has happened in every school, in every educational setting, ever since the beginning of education. Every interaction involves this, which is obvious BS. And then right. they show the one where they've organized everything. Now they've got the castle program and, and all the boxes fit and everything looks neat. So isn't it better that we do it in an organized fashion, which happens to be under our control and under our dictation and under our determination of what the competency should look like? Because it's happening anyway. You should let us have our organized program. And so you see that there's this manipulative um, belief about how social emotional learning 
is being brought into education. And I think that your typical teacher is going to see something like that. I don't know if they've been exposed to this handbook in their typical, you know, uh, edu- college of education materials or in the professional development. But I just the way that they share stupid graphics, I assume they've all seen this or something like it. You're, you get this sense that they're being trained to believe oh, it's always happening anyway. And then there's the sloppy, disorganized way where you never know what the gym coach might be teaching them. And then there's the way where we organize it and put it together in a nice, tight, systemic package with purpose and with orientation and direction and goals and, and so on. So it's not haphazard. It's not slipshod. No kids fall through the cracks. No child is left behind. And they think it's just better. So I think your average teacher is brainwashed and a useful idiot for this yeah, I, stuff. I totally agree. I mean, I think that they also have this sense of entitlement that they need to teach in this way because it's the kind and right thing to do. I mean, I'll give you an example. I went to the superintendent at my child's school and uh, sat down because I, I said, listen, I need to understand the pedagogical value in this particular exercise. It was an exercise that was was just blatantly indoctrination. And she started the conversation by saying, I just want to say, I want you to know this is a safe space. And the way she said it was, um, you could believe, you could look at her and, and almost feel how much she genuinely felt um, as though she was really proud of herself for creating a, a quote unquote safe space. My response, of course, was, well, that's a silly comment. Was there something that happened as a parent that I needed to be notified of? Like, was there a school shooting? Something happened? And she looked at me shocked. And I said, well, that's a real statement. That's like me saying, I want the sun to rise tomorrow. Of course, I don't want my child to go to school in a hateful environment. And, and, but, but she was, it was, you could tell, it was almost like the fabric of who she was at her soul, the way she was portraying it. So she really. That's why I think that spiritual stuff, by the way, from the Fetzer Institute can't be ignored. I think it is the fabric of their soul. When they're being brainwashed into a cult, they think that this is what it means to be a good person. They think they're doing something noble and good. Um, So yeah, absolutely. And quick question. Sorry. I know that you were mentioning how, like, you know, do these teachers actually recognize what they're doing or what this is and, or that it's a tactic, you know, or, or communism, but is it, do you think it's also part of kind of the redwashing of our education and the fact that they're not teaching, you know, in depth what, you know, Maoism or Lysenkoism or any, you know, kind of just communism was in the first place. So they're not actually recognizing that this is the same thing happening again and again. Yeah, it's not possible. It's not possible to recognize something you've never heard of or never seen. You name people like Lysenko, you talk about the Great Leap Forward or the Great Reset, whichever one Mao called it, I forget. Uh, You talk about those things and people just don't recognize them. They just can't see because they've never heard of them. They don't know that there's this tremendous history. We just saw, in fact, the Democrats in Virginia shot down the idea of teaching the history of communism in Virginia schools. And the justification was because of regimes like Mao's and and Pol Pot's and Cambodia, that they might lead to anti-Asian American sentiment or anti-Asian American hate. It might cause children to associate communism with Chinese people and then do racism against Chinese people in school. So we can't teach the true history of communism, um, which, of course, murdered predominantly Chinese people. It, it was sort of massively oppressive to Chinese people. It was communists wrecking lots of innocent Chinese, Cambodian, Vietnamese, and so on, Korean people. Um, really a disaster, but the, the, they don't want these things taught. And if you can't, if, if people have nobody, or almost nobody um, under the age of 50 maybe in this country has learned almost anything about the history of communism and its atrocities, and so they can't recognize these. It, it was completely a a revelation to me to have learned that Mao had this formula of unity, criticism, unity that involved the struggle session process intentionally in the middle to induce criticism that led to self-criticism that would lead to thought reform that was literally in Chinese Xinao, which means brainwash uh, or wash brain, literally. Um, 
that this was an intentional tactic that he was using and that unity was the justification. This was all revelatory to me when I discovered this. You never have been have been taught that these kinds of things might have a negative valence. And like like we were saying, they are wrapped up in this weaponized, empathetic Everybody has to feel good. Everybody needs to feel safe. Safe is determined in terms of, I mean, you even said it. It's determined. It's not determined whether or not somebody got shot or there was a kid that tried to stab somebody or something. You know, there are fights. It's actually defined, the safe space is defined in terms of we get your feelings hurt. Will somebody say something that according to one of these uh, kind of crackpot identity Marxists offend somebody possibly by some, you know, uh, tapping into some systemic injustice that they've been primed to identify and take offense to? They teach them to take offense to microaggressions and then the microaggression becomes a crisis and then the safe the space isn't safe and it invokes all this trauma that they've had which is that's a heavy psychological word word trauma there are real people who have had real trauma and nothing to diminish that and what they, their struggle is but to say that every child has had trauma because they grew up in a society that's not absolutely um you know bubble wrapped it's it's an absolute uh inversion but it taps into that desire to be empathetic, caring, protective, all the kind of things that, you know, a generation ago, we would have said are important secondary attributes to a good educator. Um, and it, it's really insidious in that way. But I do think it's because people people have been led into this because they didn't have the tools to recognize what it is. And in fact, if you told them this, they wouldn't they wouldn't recognize it. If you told them this is a Maoist formula, they say, no, 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 no. That was about unity. This is about belonging. It's completely different. Absolutely. So I see that Dr. Aaron Cariotti just jumped on. Aaron, I don't know if you have any questions that you want to ask or, or, or points that you want to bring up. Um, and I know, James, you said we haven't even gotten to the, the crazy stuff or the weird stuff. So Aaron, it looks like you were going to jump in. So. Yeah, no, I just thank, thanks for pulling me up here. Uh, it's great to be here, James. Good to meet you. Big, big fan of your works. So I'm going to continue listening for a few minutes and then I'll jump in with some commentary. But I'd, I'd like to let James, you know, continue sort of unpacking social emotional learning for us. So, James, you said that um, we haven't even gotten to the weird stuff yet. Should we get into the weird stuff? <laughs> I mean, I did touch on it, so we can elaborate, but um, that's the Fetzer Institute connection. I mean, it's one of these things where no matter how – where I said it's like a field full of rocks and under every rock is a monster, um, it's difficult to put into words how strange – that institute is and the fact that it becomes the birthplace of social emotional learning um again like i said john fetzer had already died so he didn't do it uh the two kind of primary there was a group and at one point I actually saw a list of all the names there was like 18 or 20 people who actually formulated social emotional learning in the beginning it built off of like i said something called whole child education which means that you're going to educate the whole child his social emotional physical you know nutritional every aspect oh he's got a rough home life but we're going to nurture him we're going to mentor him we're going to do stand and deliver with him you we're going to nurture every aspect of his life. We're not just going to teach him academic skills. We're not just going to teach the head. We're going to teach every aspect of his being, the whole child. So it cobbles onto this off of these primarily the two kind of big names that were in the room forming it at the Fetzer Institute were Tim Shriver, who was the CEO of the Special Olympics and in the Kennedy family, and, you know, obviously very well connected. And then Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence in roughly the same year, 94 or thereabouts. No conflict just there. And so... 
these guys come up with this idea with, with a handful of others, about 20 others, come up with this idea of social emotional learning that's going to take whole child education to the next level. But it's also based off of the principles of the Fetzer Institute because that's where it's being born. That's the mentality. By the way, you go listen to some of Tim Shriver's uh, Unity podcasts that he puts out. It's a little new agey, to, to put it mildly. I don't know much about Daniel Goleman except that the EQ thing kind of got completely uh, – that it's largely being regular IQ with high high savvy with with verbal and you know the emotional words. So high verbal savvy with emotional terms that you can distinguish between being furious and angry, uh, and that, that is actually an intellectual exercise, not an emotional exercise. Um, but at any rate, uh, the Fetzer Institute is weird. John Fetzer was weird. Like I'm not kidding. He did channelings with psychics. He talked to the Archangel Michael. He believed in this whole manifesting thing that if you talk into the world that the thing will come true. He, a very strange guy, very rich guy, who believed his BS because it made him. He made a lot of money while believing in it. Uh, he endowed the Fetzer Institute when he created it with two hundred million dollars of his own money, um, which is a lot. But like I said, the purpose was to fuse spirituality and science. But he was a big devotee of this one particular character among many. I mean, we could get into The Course in Miracles, which he said was the most spiritual book ever. There was a copy of it literally physically in the foundation because he wanted everything that happened to be based on A Course in Miracles, which is out there as far as books go. But he, I mean, you name the crazy spiritualist belief, he had it and uh, theosophical, occult, whatever. But he was big into this woman named Alice Bailey, who, like I said, wrote this book called Education in the New Age. What's the new age? It's the age of Aquarius. What's the point of education in the new age? More psychologist than educator. How's it going to be done? Infuse the, infuse the science of right human relations into every sub. And if you actually go through her roadmap where she gets kind of rubber to the road and isn't talking about weird kind of co-opted Hindu and Buddhist concepts in, in, in bad ways, uh, Aryan race, all this, no kidding, uh, fifth root race going to lead humanity through a spiritual revival, and it's the Aryans that are the ones, and they're primarily located not in the Asians or the Africans, but in the Caucasian, uh, yeah, like for real, it's in there. Um, but she, she writes this book, and when you get to where the rubber meets the road instead of the weird stuff, her Planned Parenthood chapter pre or section in one chapter four i think is really weird you know it turns out we're making too many bodies for the number of advanced souls so inferior souls are having to inhabit bodies so we need to plan parenthood better friend of margaret sanger check true uh turns out the planned parenthood there is the same planned parenthood and the justification is an occult belief in inferior and superior souls inhabiting too many bodies um scary stuff but she writes in the rubber meeting the road and it i went into this thinking eh it's not really SEL. And then as I read through this a couple of times, the second reading through, I was like, this is remarkably similar, you know, self-awareness, self-management. You know, you're starting to see the Castle Five kind of fall out of this program, which was written in probably the 1930s. There's no actual copyright specifically on this book that I'm aware of, um, which I obtained from UNESCO, oddly enough, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Uh, but it turns out also, though, it's under the imprint called Lucis. Lucius, L-U-C-I-S, uh, trust. The, the Lucius Publishing Company was what it was called before it was incorporated, reincorporated as a trust after it started to receive a lot of Ford and Rockefeller money. And uh, who, they were listed as the, the their world servers, as they called them. I guess Bill and Melinda Gates became world servers as well. Guess who is the number one funder of social emotional learning? If you guessed Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you guessed correctly. Um, but at any rate, they have tried to distance themselves, at least publicly, from that. But the Lucius 
publishing companies are that's that's what it was called in 1924 but it was originally called something else in 1922 which is the lucifer publishing company which is a really strange thing to have named it and so like you start have to start asking yourself i know we're a couple of links in the chain away from modern transformative sel it's freerian and humanistic and all this but you roots matter you know, um, they do matter. They're not irrelevant. When you read this book that was published by the Lucifer Publishing Company and explicitly says that education is for figuring out who the workers are going to be, who the mystics are going to be, and who the occultists are going to be among the children, this other strange stuff, you have to start wondering why it maps onto what became SEL, you know, 100 years later, almost with or 80 years later, with such high fidelity. Um, so there's very weird esoteric roots to whatever SEL seems to be organized around. And now how much of that it fully incorporates, I don't know. They're proud of the castle, at least is proud of the relationship, which still involves a lot of money um, from the Fetzer Institute. The, both organizations proudly boast that they worked together to create SEL, that John Fetzer's vision informed where this was going. So there are other weird issues. And when you look at what they're actually trying to do with this whole child education, say if you look at the WISC model, whole school, whole community whole child wscc which is the competency-based thing and it's worse than that it's to turn the schools into a complete community center based off of social emotional learning their nutritional needs or medical needs everything becomes kind of a walmart style one-stop shop at the school so the kids don't you don't have to take your kid to the doctor the doctor's at the school you don't have to take your kid to the physical therapist the physical therapist at the school or whatever it happens to be when you start to look at what they're actually doing with it there is a lot of integration of spiritualism and spirituality and meditation and mindfulness meditation that's all kind of new agey in its approach to teach them to manage their emotions and so on. So there is a spiritual component to this. But then you also see that what they're doing is treating the sustainable development goals almost as a spiritual target. That's what it means to be a good person. That's what it means for a space to be safe. These same kinds of empathetic, emotive, effective words that you were using before all start to become very relevant. And it, it, like I said, this is more a question mark than an exclamation mark, in my opinion, about what SEL is and what it represents. But I think that those questions demand some answers because it's real weird that we've implemented this in every school based off of nothing specific in one law that got passed in 2015. Nothing right. specific. At so, no point in the SSA does it say we're going to do social emotional learning. It says you're going to report if you want money on non-academic competence. And then SEL went out and Castle went out and lobbied and said, here's one. This is easy. We've got it packaged up for you. Super convenient. No conflict of interest or fraud involved there. So um, this is where I, I go back to what we were, we were touching on before, which is kind of this pre-World War II um, Adolf Hitler uh, tactics that he used, it feels very agenda driven. And I don't want to, I don't want to be conspiracy theory. I don't want to go down that, those rabbit holes, but it, it feels very agenda driven that there is this war on um, the traditional family or nuclear family unit. And how do you, how do you break down that unit? Well, you insert this school in place of the parents mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So to me, it just it feels very agenda driven. Well, it is. And I can talk. Actually, we, we do have to go down those rabbit holes, to be honest about SEL. But before that, you know, earlier we were talking about the very emotional thing and the, the safe space and all of that. But what I had actually wanted to say, but I forgot because I actually engaged with what you said instead, is that what you see here is a usurpation of the concept of expertise. Why is it that the parent has to be displaced? If you ask the teacher, why are you doing this? Why are you taking away the right to guide the, the upbringing of my child? They're going to tell you if you actually get down to brass tacks 
because we're experts and you're not. And we've seen so many videos where they say that publicly, whether it's teachers, whether it's administrators, whether it's Terry McAuliffe running for governor of Virginia, we have a master's degree. You don't. There was just that video that went viral. I have a master's degree. Parents don't have a master's degree in raising their kids. I have a master's degree in brainwashing them or whatever it is that they have a master's degree. So they actually believe that they're not just emotionally superior, but intellectually superior to parents in regard to the fundamental role of the parent. And thus, this breaking down of the nuclear family, this replacement of the nuclear family is, in fact, part of what's happening. Social emotional learning becomes a justification. They are the experts in teaching social and emotional skills. You're a haphazard. You might even be dangerous. You might not be affirming of a child that's going through gender transition. So you are a primary hazard. The school needs to protect your child from. And you can see where that road goes. But this is all very damaging. Yeah. But these rabbit holes have to be gone down. The World Economic Forum since 2015 has been overwhelmingly pushing the idea of social emotional learning as the future of education. They've been bad signaling, which is one of their primary f- purposes. People say, what's the, what is it for? What's the World Economic Forum for? Well, yeah, it's an elbow rubbing club. You get politicians, they make agreements, you get business leaders and, you know, so-and-so together. You get maybe Leonardo DiCaprio or some stars are there. You get these guys rubbing elbows. It's not just a networking elbow rubbing club, though, because what they do is they publish these white paper industry agendas. And what they're signaling is, hey, we got a bunch of leaders in industry and a bunch of leaders in politics together, and we decided community uh, collectively that this is where good investment money is going to go so they can manifest the world that they want to create by saying in this case social emotional learning facilitated through ed technology that can track eyes that can read heart rates that can track skin conductance all of these kind of weird technologies through ai digital buddies through data collection and serving the world economic 2015 and 16 published two reports on this very specifically saying that there's going to be a massive investment opportunity which people who read that and know what it is means industry leaders and government leaders have come together to agree that there's a going to be a big industry opportunity here to invest in ed tech that facilitates social emotional learning and these various technological applications of data gathering and so on. And so this has to be pursued. The UNESCO is pushing this explicitly writing in 2019 uh, SEL for SDGs and saying that social emotional learning is required to retool education to teach children to achieve the sustainable goals because it's the tool to overcome their cognitive dissonance when their education is supplanted with this and when the weight of the world is put on their shoulders. So these large organizations are doing this very intentionally. A leftist by the name of Ben Williamson wrote a paper in 2019 called Psychocracy, no, called Psychodata. Sorry, he describes it as a psychocracy, that the paper is called Psychodata. And he explains in his estimation as a critical theorist who's asking the who benefits question in a very kind of leftist but real way, he says, who benefits from this? Well, what they're trying to build out in their own words, and he quotes them extensively, naming these organizations, he says, they're building a system by which you can program kids to be perfectly predictable consumers and perfectly controllable political subjects. And the reason is because you're gathering the data to get very granular psychometric profiles of them that you then use to tailor the next round of so-called education on them to make them fit and believe exactly as you need them to fit and believe according to who they are as an individual, facilitated by AI and algorithms, which is exactly what the World Economic Forum was bragging about and exactly what UNESCO was saying you use in order to gather the data to know when to intervene to overcome the cognitive distance of the children. So these conspiracy-based agenda-driven, it doesn't just feel agenda-driven. They've written the agenda. It's yeah. You can call it a conspiracy theory, or you can call it a conspiracy written down fact, whatever <laughs> you want. They, they have written yeah. down, it's a conspiracy agenda or something. They right. have written down that this is their agenda. We know how the World Economic Forum works, that they signal to industry, make this happen, and we've made conditions be so that money will flow in these ways if you do. 
And this is exactly what you see manifesting on the ground, because whether it's textbooks, whether it's, you know, uh, Chromebooks, the technology, whether it's the heart math program that actually is heart monitors while they do math class, uh, these things have all been highly incentivized by the elbow rubbing club and these big players who know they stand to benefit from implementing this because they're building out, like I said, that simultaneous supply and demand. They're building out the economy of the future and the worker of the future to plug in so they can get around the problem of reproduction entirely. Right. And Aaron's yeah. hands went up like six times, <laughs> so I'll shut up and let him go. No, this is, this is great, James. And I just just to draw a few more lines and pick up a couple of your threads and maybe try to connect them together. First of all, I think you're real back to the DNA of this and to get the origins in the Fetzer Institute and the history of the Fetzer Institute. I actually have had some dealings with the Fetzer Institute. I was invited uh, when I was at the University of California to take part in a, a kind of three-year mentoring uh, program where sort of senior scholars at the university tapped a couple of junior scholars to this invite-only thing, we went to several meetings hosted by the Fetzer Institute. The whole project was funded by the Fetzer Institute. Uh, and we were invited to kind of put together a project and, and work on it. So um, everything you said about the Fetzer Institute is true. And in fact, the Fetzer Institute abandoned our project in year two out of three, because I think we were like too normal and we were just doing, you know, we were, we were putting together a model for peer mentoring groups and higher education to help, you know, help people that were struggling with burnout and kind of meaningless bureaucratic nonsense to, to support one another. And it was, you know, I think it was helpful, but it wasn't, I, I don't know, it wasn't spiritual, spiritualist enough or, or something for them. So they abandoned our project. Uh, but I, I did spend a couple of years kind of interacting with the Institute and my impression of both Fetzer and social emotional learning and the actual spiritual core that's driving this is uh, that, you know, you talked, you talked about new age, you talked about theosophy, which is a sort of late 19th century movement. You talked about strands of the occult that are in there. And by the way, uh, people involved in those movements don't consider Lucifer to be a bad word for them. Lucifer is the angel of light and he's been badly maligned by Christians. Um, but if we really understand the angel of light, and interact with him correctly, then he can give us power, but it's all, all for the good, of course. So it's very, it's very subtle, but basically all of these, all of these uh, spiritual elements informing uh, social emotional learning are ultimately forms of a very ancient religious outlook called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was sort of Christianity's main competitor in the ancient world. Uh, and Gnostics had some doctrines that on the surface could look Christian or could look Jewish. Um, but as you dug into them, you realized that they were very, very far from the Orthodox Christian church or very, very far from, you know, the religion of, of the Hebrews in the ancient world. And basically the Gnostic sects uh, had, they had their differences, but they had a couple of basic things in common. One of the things they had in common, and this goes back to your point about elitism, is that for Gnosticism, it was only a select few that had access to the secret knowledge or the secret rights so that they could become enlightened and exist basically on a higher spiritual plane than everyone else. And this is one of the ways that they contrasted with Christianity, because Christianity said, at least in principle, salvation is, is available to everyone and anyone, regardless of your social status or your strata, male, female, whatever. The Gnostics didn't believe that. The Gnostics believed that part of a select elite um, that basically had to run the show, uh, that basically because because they were enlightened, because they could see higher truths that other were blind to, you know, the ordinary plebes, um, they had they had a sort of special role in 
guiding everyone. And when I hear you talk about them trying to identify, you know, gather all this psychometric data, gather all this um, uh, actually biometric data to try to categorize children early on, and that, you know, some of them are, what did you call it, mystics, uh, that's Gnosticism through and through, right? Let's identify the ones that can be sort of groomed uh, into uh, positions where they are in control. Gnosticism is ultimately about control and power. Uh, the other central element that all the Gnostic uh, religions had in common that, that they share with neo-Gnostic religions um, from social emotional learning to, to Marxism can be understood in some respects as a neo-Gnostic religion is the b- basic belief that we have to we have to overcome the natural order. We have to transcend it in some way. Uh, the, the world is ordered, but that order is oppressive. That order, uh, you know, keeps us down. Order keeps us from, uh, you know, our ultimate elevated spiritual destiny. And so, uh, you know, biology has natural laws. And, you know, the, the, the traditional family is rooted uh, in, in a very basic sense in humanology and in reproduction and male-female complementarity and, you know, the way in which new human beings are brought into the world, so forth. And for the Gnostics, that's basically just an affront. That's a, that's an abomination. That's something that we have to uh, that we have to transcend or overcome. Uh, and I think both of those elements you see built into the DNA of what you're describing, this movement and, and where it grew out of. And in some respects, you know, this is a new phenomenon in education that we have to deal with. But in other respects, it's also a very, very old phenomenon. Uh, we saw recycled versions of uh, Gnosticism at various points during the 20th century, including Nazism. Uh, I mean, not the Nazis, it's, it's now well, pretty well characterized by historians that the Nazis themselves dabbled very deeply in, in the occult. Um, and there were certainly elements of Nazi ideology and Nazi race doctrine uh, that coincided with, you know, basically the, 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 the spiritual fa- framework that you've been describing here and that uh, the Fetzer Institute certainly is very much influenced by in the late 19th century movements and spiritualism and theos- I can never say the word theosophy, um, all basically drawing on ancient and medieval Gnostic sources. Uh, so th- this stuff is this stuff is real. It's scary. It's not a conspiracy or a conspiracy theory. It's just a plan. Um, it's people who actually believe this that think things would be better if they were in power and if they could hold sway over the minds of the generation of human beings. And they they have a plan in place to try to affect that. Um, and that's how people throughout history have acted. That's how powerful people act in any age is, you know, they collaborate, they like people who are like-minded get together, they collaborate, they make a plan, uh, whether a good plan or a bad plan to try to achieve their aims. Um, And then those who lack a conscience will try to achieve those aims by any means necessary, including by, um, including by basically turning your children into the raw material from which massive amounts of data is extracted either for sale on the commercial market or for um, control uh, by people who want to shape society in a particular direction. Oh man, I'm so excited to let you just rip there because this has been the drum that I've been beating for like a year. And uh, 
I don't know if you knew that because you spoke about it as though I did not. So I feel so vindicated right now. I actually think that Marxism itself, based off of Hegel's adoption and codification of, I think there was a New Age movement in the Middle Ages in Europe. I think Hegel codified it. And this New Age movement brought back Gnosticism and in fact fused it with various hermetic concepts, which is another one of these esoteric religions. Everything you described about it I, I, is, is accurate to what I've been saying. I feel so vindicated at the moment. It's just thrilling. Um, and truly, uh, I think that what Marx called socialism is, in fact, gnosis under his Gnostic system. Correct. It is the secret knowledge. Yeah, that's right. And I think that when we look at the woke, the, what they call critical consciousness or wokeness or whatever, that's having adopted gnosis, that's having been initiated into the cult. I've been talking about how cults have a structure. How is it that so many teachers can be so firmly in this mindset without having any idea? Well, it's because these these cults have a structure, which is that they're like onions. The very core are people who really know what's going on, and that's the leadership or the inner circle which might be quite broad. It might be layered in itself. Then you have what's called an inner school, and that's the scholars and the adepts who have actually learned about it. And then outside that, you have what we might call an outer school. And those people are merely initiates. They've been morally or socially or psychologically primed to buy into this program, but they don't know anything about it. In other words, they've been given a desire for unity. And as they commit to that desire for unity in Mao's formulation, they then step forward into the criticism and self-criticism, so they get a deep, deep moral and social commitment to these views. And at that point, when they've achieved enough through criticism and self-criticism, they do in the modern parlance what they call doing the work. But in Chinese, they called it shui shi, which means study. So then you start to study the actual doctrine, and that's your that's your initiation right. And again, from outer school to inner school, each of these three kind of categories, outer school, inner school, inner circle of cult, of Gnostic cult structure, each one of them, not only do their inner kind of initiation rites that might be quite vague uh, or quite truly ritualistic, you know, Eleusinian mysteries kind of thing, you know, on maybe Epstein Island, and then you can be in the inner right. circle of stakeholders. Uh, maybe each one of these has can have many gradations or layers or levels within it. So you may have people who are outer school who are increasing in their commitment. It doesn't have to be codified that you're like level three woke, level four woke. And then when you get to level 11 woke, then you go through a right and you start to study the, you know, Robin D'Angelo. And then you move on to studying Kimberly Crenshaw. Now you're like a level 14 adept. Not that codified. It's quite ambiguous, actually. But the structure is actually there. And it is a Gnostic cult, and in fact is the largest Gnostic cult startup in human history, facilitated right. by technology, facilitated by their their infiltration into all of Western education, facilitated by rivers of money from not just these NGOs and these organizations that we've been talking about and influence, but also the CCP, um, which turns out to be in the same Gnostic cult and kind of a different branch of it. And so what we're seeing and what we're up against is, in fact, when Steve Bannon gets up and says this so well over and over again, we're at an inflection point in history. He's not kidding. The Gnostics are going for it. They're going for broke. They've had a phenomenology of spirit was published. It's Hegel in 1807. Yep. So they've had, let me see if I can do the math real fast, uh, 200 and what, uh, I'm a math teacher, 16 years of clear runway with nobody really knowing, very few people pinning down what they actually are. Oh, it's an economic theory. Oh, it's a social theory. Oh, it's just an educational approach. Nobody was able to say, no, this is a gigantic cult. And the entire modern era created a, rather than a kind of Christian, you know, Yahweh in Genesis is actually the demiurge that's the great imprisoner of being, and it becomes a secret knowledge that we can escape yep. that by yep. knowing that he's not the real God. That's the old Christian Gnostic sect, Valentinian, Sethian, Manichian is a little bit different, you know, these kinds of things. But now it's 
science it's it's system de Wissenschaft or whatever from from Hegel or Wissenschaft or Socialismus from Marx. It's that there's a system of science that's actually Gnostic, which funny enough or not funny enough, if you realize that the Neoplatonists in Europe were all into this New Age stuff, is a very Platonic structure. They're reinventing the scientia of Plato. They're reinventing who's by the way a Pythagorean cultist, and this a lot of this is Pythagorean. If you want to know why there are seventeen yeah. sustainable development goals. That's a mystery number in Pythagoras. It is yeah. uh, the, the number of the spiral of Theodorus, which is one turn of the dialectic um, to transform the world. But this um, Plato broke down what he called science or scientia into two levels. And the top level was episteme, where we get the word epistemology or knowing. And that was what the philosopher kings had access to. That's the higher level of reason as it was translated yeah. out of Hegel's German, Vernunft in German. And then the lower level is dianoia, which is the kind of technical knowledge that informs techni, the ability to do things. And it gets translated as understanding, that for stand in German and Hegel. So you have reason, which is actually superior to, as a second dimension of knowing, that is superior to mere understanding. So what we think of as science is not all of science to them. For them, there's a, there's a traditional theory dimension and a second critical theory dimension. And that second critical theory dimension has the right moral valence has the the right secret knowledge it has the science of right human relations and when you mention by the way that hitler was into the occult it turns out that the race occultism in hitler why he went with the swastika why he went with the aryan race and why that appears in alice bailey's book is they have a common ancestor in the in the form of helena blavatsky who started the theosophical yep. movement in the 1870s yep. she was right. the importer from india of these ideas the fifth root race and the aryan people and the aryans being the spiritual leaders and the, their symbol is, in fact, if you, I've been reading The Secret Doctrine, which I don't know why the copy I have is weird pagination, but it's 1,500 pages, so I haven't made it very far. But it, she elaborates from the symbol of, you know, the, the eternal void through it becoming the sun, through it becoming the differentiation of male and female and the cross, and then eventually to the swastika. And, and then the swastika loses the circle. It's just this whole weird occult thing about it. And this is not ambiguous. This is known history that Hitler somehow did not study with her, but stumbled upon her book. And this informed their occultism very heavily, but also so did Hegel, and so did Marx, who Hitler said that he studied their methods until he understood them, and then he turned them around on them for his own purposes. That's exactly what he says about the communists in uh, chapter three or thereabouts of Mein Kampf. If you bother to, to read him, he tells you, I adopted the communist program, put it to my own ends, and he cobbles in this reaction and the race ideology that he got from Blavatsky. Well, Blavatsky had a number of famous pupils not just hitler who seems to have read her book i don't know what i'm doing i'm accidentally muting people i'm sorry uh not just hitler who seems to have read her book but also alice bailey directly until she started doing her own channelings and became her own character and got kicked out for you know having the the tibetan sage um as her her new master but also margaret sanger was a blavatskyite also annie Bassett, uh, who was the fabian socialist um very influential in not just fabian socialism but also the feminist movement that uh, was kind of at the heart of this. There, uh, there's kind of this litany of kind of very influential theosophists who shaped a lot of the 20th century progressive movement, also informed Hitler. And all of these bad ideas are getting recycled, now getting cobbled back together with the Marxist Hegel kind of um, dimension that we saw previously. And social emotional learning somehow seems to be at the, if we drew about big Venn diagram, it seems to be right near the middle of that Venn diagram uh, of horrific ideas. Um, and the reason is because when they're applied without knowing what they are, they work. They work very well 
unless they're exposed for being what they actually are. They don't work in the sense of making the world work. They work in the sense of bending people's minds to the cult system. To the ideology. Yeah, let me... So I'm so glad you brought that up, though. I feel very vindicated. Let me riff on what you just said by saying something about maybe a, a sniff test for noticing or recognizing when you're dealing with a, a, a neo-Gnostic ideology and that whether the ancient Gnostics or, or the 19th, 20th, and now 21st century Gnostics, Gnostic reasoning is always certain. Um, it, uh, it doesn't begin from foundational premises. It begins uh, from an entire system that one has to accept. And the proof of the system is the system itself. I mean, this is how Hegel's philosophy works. This is how Marxist philosophy works. So if you're if you're living in a communist regime and you hand and you attempt to ask a, a rational question about what's going on here, um, then the, the Marxist ideologue or the woke ideologue will not attempt to actually have a meaningful argument with you. They will simply say, well, um, clearly, because you're challenging this or that uh, communist doctrine, you're just not. Basically, you're not so enlightened or woke. I mean, the word woke itself is a, is a Gnostic word. Uh, you are you are subject uh, subjected to uh, a, a false consciousness, a bourgeois consciousness. You're you're infected by the fact that you're thinking outside of the system. And therefore, we don't have to argue with you. We can actually just cut you off from the realm of rational conversation and place you outside the realm of acceptable opinion and literally, you know, steamroll you. This is this is cancel culture in a, in a nutshell. Um, you know, you actually is it really a good thing that we're that we're nudging 13, 14 year old boys and girls into a medical program where healthy genitals will eventually be amputated. Right. If you ask that question, you're not going to get a rational evidence based uh, nuanced or careful answer to that question. You're going to get accused of being a bigot or accused of simply not understanding the, you know, what's at work here and therefore not worth talking to. And in fact, you have to be deplatformed. You have, you have to be shut down. You have to be silenced as you're not part of the elite Gnostic um, uh, initiates who actually know what's going on and actually understand the direction of history, right? The Gnostic clerisy or the Gnostic elite can discern the direction of history. Uh, that's the basis for their ethics. It's the ethics of the direction of history. We know that history is progressively moving in this direction. And our job is to sort of advance that uh, movement of history in that particular direction. And if you're not on board the train, uh, you can, you're simply going to be left behind on the you know, dust heap of history. And if you get in the way, you can simply be run over uh, because you're obviously a bad person. So, I mean, one way to recognize any one or another of these neo-Gnostic ideologies is that they always advance uh, rather than through rational argumentation, they advance through um, slander, they advance through defamation, and they advance through the promise of future happiness. Right? And this is, a, this is another really important feature because, and this is, by, by the way, there's, there's one sort of major contrast between the ancient Gnostics and the neo-Gnostics. So the ancient Gnostics wanted to overcome the material world and the material order. They thought, they thought the spiritual world was created by a good God, the material world was created by an evil God. Many of them characterized the God of the Bible as the as the, the evil demiurge, as you said just a few minutes ago. Uh, and so that's that's what needs to be sort of overcome and transcended so that you could exist in this sort of purely spiritual realm and escape, basically escape from the world. The neo-Gnostics don't necessarily want to promise 
that you're going to, through various rites of initiation, escape from the oppressive uh, material order. Uh, instead of putting, uh, putting the, the goal or the end point uh, someplace uh, transcendent or, or heavenly or you know, in, in some alternative realm of nirvana that can be achieved, they place, uh, they place this end point in the, right? It's always around the corner. And if only we had more power, or if only society was more perfectly uh, abiding by Marxist doctrine, or if only uh, those who are fully woke could hold all the levers of power, then we would usher in the, the, the new age of happiness and contentment and bliss. And, uh, you know, Marx described, uh, described the, you know, the realm of, of, of freedom as so utterly different uh, than what we've experienced now that he could barely describe it. I mean, it was, this is the religious element of Marxism. You know, Marx was an atheist. There's a religious element of Marxism in that, uh, you know, he places, uh, he places beatitude or, or perfect happiness, not in some he heavenly realm, but in the future. So the promise of future happiness, if only we get what we want, and the refusal to engage in um, critical debate, uh, discussion, dialectic, um, reasoned argumentation, these are all clear signs that more than likely you're dealing with um, you're dealing with a Gnostic ideology that that ultimately is circular and you either buy into the whole system and, you know, go round and round the circular merry-go-round of reasoning, um, even if it has no rational basis or no start point that's, that's meaningful or clear or based on evidence, uh, or you don't. And if you don't, you're simply one of the plebes. You're simply one of the uh, one of the sort of lower down on the caste system of enlightenment. And we don't have to deal with you. Right. You're just you're just raw material for the Gnostic elites to achieve their ultimate purpose. Yeah, you're the hoi polloi. Like, so this gets a little abstruse and abstract, and I'm not criticizing you, Aaron, at all. I want to bring this back to the topic of the, the discussion very specifically for people to make sure that the point isn't lost. We didn't go off into the weeds here. We've actually gone toward the core of the issue. So I'm going to read to you uh, a paragraph from Paulo Ferreri's 2000 book, the book from year 2000. It's a weird thing to say, but a book published in 2000 called Pedagogy of Freedom. And I'm just going to read one paragraph. It's on page 15 of my copy of it. It says, the teacher who thinks correctly transmits to the students the beauty of our way of existing in the world as historical beings capable of intervening in and knowing the world. Historical as we are, our knowledge of the world has historicity. It transmits, in addition, that our, knowledge, that our knowing and our knowledge are the fruit of historicity. So you can hear, by the way, just as my commentary, that circularity that Aaron was describing, that, that as Hegel described as the circle of circles. It, 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 it has no actual center. You just keep walking in the same circle. But I'm going to continue. This is Paulo Freire again, writing in 2000 in one of his books. And Paulo Freire is the guy who set up the theft of education, the mechanism by which all of this crap is happening. Social-emotional learning is based, according to Linda Darling-Hammond, one of its greatest proponents uh, in being consistent with Paul Freire. So I'm going to continue uh, all this historicity stuff that, that Aaron was actually just talking about. There it is. And he goes on, he says, and that knowledge when newly produced replaces what before was new, but is now old and ready to be surpassed of a new dawn. Therefore, it is as necessary to be immersed in existing knowledge as it is to be capable of producing something that does not yet exist. And these two moments of the epistemological process are accounted for in teaching, learning, and doing research. 
the one moment in which knowledge that already exists is taught and learned, and the other in which the production of what is not yet known is the object of research. Thus, the teaching learning process, together with the work of research, and listen to this, is essential and an inseparable aspect of the Gnostic cycle. So that's what Paulo Ferreri says about his own method, his own history-driven circular thing that Aaron just described very, very eloquently. He says that his teaching, learning, research method, there's a, a Hegelian triad, by the way, uh, is an essential and inseparable aspect of the Gnostic cycle. That's the purpose of what they're doing. So when we say that, you know, this Gnostic stuff, we get off of Gnosticism, we are not getting into the weeds. We're actually getting to the core of it. But the whole thing is always set up in Gnosticism to where when you get near the core, you look like you're talking crazy. Um, because it's essentially, as Aaron said, it's it's a philosophy built on nothing. The philosophy built on the assertions of the people who created it so that it's always self-justifying in the end. Um, Hegel said that his philosophy is the justification for his philosophy. As a matter of fact, he was quite conscious of that fact. Um, and this, therefore, comes back to whether it's social-emotional learning, whether it's the Marxification of education and critical pedagogy. This is the guy upon whom critical pedagogy is based, Paulo Freire saying that his method is the Gnostic cycle. So this is quite literally what we're dealing with. So what does that mean social-emotional learning is? It means it is an initiation into a Gnostic cult. And that Gnostic cult is the one we've kind of been describing under the word woke, that kind of is this broad but not that complicated definition of identifying dehumanizing structures in the world and relentlessly denouncing them so that the mere possibility is as Freire has it, the coming of a new dawn, the mere possibility of a better world is announced in potentia and will be realized by making sure people who think this way have their hands on a lover's power. It's always a power grab. And so we must understand what's happening in our schools this way if we want to diagnose it correctly. It is the, it is the wholesale, at this point, initiation of children into a Gnostic cult. And their buzzwords, their kind of secret Gnostic knowledge about how the world really works and how everything has to be shaped are captured in their three buzzwords that I think they can't get away from, which are equity, inclusion, and sustainability. Those are the three, like you want to pick targets, everything they will, they just rebrand, they throw it away. It's not CRT anymore. It's the other CRT. It's not critical race theory. It's culturally relevant teaching. It's not ESG anymore. It's excellence in investing or whatever nonsense. They can't get away from equity, inclusion, and sustainability. They're absolutely married. That is what their ideology, those are the three legs of their ideology, the, the three pillars holding it up. And you knock those out and the stool can't stay up. But those concepts are what all of education is being tooled to, to go in the direction of right now. And they're not to be understood in this neutral way where they sell it and it sounds great. They're to be understood in the way that the Gnostics have decided that these things actually should be defined. And those people are the people that meet in Davos or that, that sit in the chairs in the United Nations, or they have gone to the island that shall not be named or whatever it happens to be. And this is the predicament we find ourselves in in the world. And this is a predicament in education at the deepest level. So just to really underscore where, where Aaron and I have taken this conversation, did not go into the, into the nether regions and become uninteresting. It became the very difficult to, to stare at center of the problem. Yeah. Let me just, let me just, land land a point maybe summing up kind of all of this in, in one concept social emotional learning on the surface looks like and it's presented as you know we're just educating while we're attending to your child's psychology or your child's um, you know uniqueness or you know we're taking into account the fact that your child is not just an intellect but your child has feelings too which sounds innocuous and sounds sensible i mean good education should take account of 
child psychology should take account of the child's emotional life and, you know, in, informing how to educate a child. But that's not what social emotional learning actually is. What it actually is, is religious education. It's not just religious instruction. It's religious induction. Um, it is, uh, it's not just catechesis. It's catechesis and practice and prayer and worship. It's, it's being introduced in public schools, which are not supposed to be religious. Um, it's introduced in Catholic and uh, Jewish and Protestant schools, which are supposed to have their own religious instruction according to their own traditions. But it is, in fact, uh, a religion. Um, it's a religion of a particular kind that James and I have tried to characterize. It's a religion that has taken various forms throughout history for the last roughly 2,000, 2,500 years. So it's a religion that can be described and characterized and that has historical um, examples of people practicing. Um, it's not just an idea. It's, it's a series of practices. So just I, I think to be clear, to maybe drive home the point, social emotional learning is not you know, a method of education that pays attention to child psychology. Social emotional learning is a set of religious practice and instruction and initiation and induction of a particular kind. And once you learn what kind of religious instruction it is, I think most parents wouldn't want that for their children. And I got to bounce here in a few minutes, but this, is, this has been fun. So This has been amazing. Um, I think... Why don't we start to wind down? Um, do you guys, I, we probably have 10 more minutes. Do you, James, do you want to take a couple of questions? It looks like we've got potentially some questions. Yeah, I'm down. That's fine. All right. Let's see here. I'm going to just see if we can add some folks here. Uh, oh, I, I had a quick question in the meantime. I know that there's some uh, legislative um, actions happening. We're trying to fight back. I think Senator Salmon, I think in Iowa, has kind of started to try to fight back against SEL. Are there, is that the way to try to get this out of the schools or is it the parents that need to try to address it? And, you know, what do you think is the best way to kind of fight back against what is already being implemented? That's a fascinating question and a hard question. I mean, if we take seriously what was just said about this being a method of not just religious instruction, but religious induction, um, the we're, we're mostly kind of trying to put some like flex tape or whatever the flex seal or whatever they call it on, on holes in the boat uh, with legislation and so on. Now, I'm really supportive of what's happened in Iowa with Senator Salmon and trying to ban SEL from their Iowa State Department of Education and ban Castle from it. Uh, and I have spoken with that legislature about it um, in, in, in a pretty in-depth meeting, and I did a podcast about it that came out the other day. Uh, but ultimately, if we take this seriously, we have a, you know, absolutely top rate First Amendment violation happening at the broadest scale possible that we have to take much more seriously than we are. And parents objecting to this um, is going to be a start, but I think it's going to end in a lawsuit. And that lawsuit may end up before the Supreme Court. Uh, and in the meantime, the schools have to be regarded as cult indoctrination centers. I've sat in, in, in sat, I've stood on stages and given this speech many times. And I asked the question of the audience. Um, if you knew you were sending your child to a Maoist style, or we could say Gnostic at this point, um, but a Maoist style thought reform institution for 30 something hours a week, what would you do differently in your life? If you knew that's what you were sending your kids to, what would you do differently? And the first thing you would probably do is get them out of there and start trying to inoculate them against whatever might be happening to them uh, if you can't or both. 
And the second thing you do is you would start petitioning your government to make sure that this cannot continue, that this is not what Americans want. This is not an American uh, value. This isn't a, has nothing to do with freedom. And this has absolutely no place. What in the world? It's not just a violation of your own religion if you happen to be, you know, Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or what. It's not just violating your religion. It's, in fact, imposing a religion on your children. And, and a lot of people are, are wary, and I think wisely about how to go about this First Amendment issue. But if the fact is that what it is, that this is an ancient religion with it's describable, it's clear, and, and this is what this tool is doing and is for, then we've got a massive, I mean, 90-something percent of school districts in the United States, maybe north of 95% of them, are implementing intentional religious instruction and what would be flagrant violation of the First Amendment uh, that we can't see. This isn't for a dangerous cult religion. This is an alarming problem. Uh, so legislation, I think, is like, you know, whatever his name is, Billy Mays or whatever, sticking the tape on the side of the leaking boat and hoping it stays afloat. We've got to do something probably a lot grander than that, which is to describe this thing accurately for what it is, make the arguments, make them clear, and make parents and judges start to react to this the way that it needs to be reacted to. And I honestly understand why people are hesitant, because with Establishment Clause, Restriction comes free exercise clause privilege, uh, and then there's the people who are worried, well, if we classify this thing as a religion, what does that mean for good religions like Christianity? Doesn't that dilute or poison the word religion? I understand these arguments, and there are more cynical and prosaic arguments, like for a solution to this problem with the First Amendment, then we wouldn't have to use other solutions that have political valence and big, you know, big lots of gold for certain people on the other end of them. Uh I understand that there are those kinds of motivations as well, but uh, I think we have to think very seriously. If this thing is, in fact, the way that we are describing it, and I think that we should be investigating that very seriously, um, perhaps Aaron and I are wrong. I don't think we are. But if it is the fact that this is what it is, then we have to bring the full machinery of our constitutional republic upon that and and, and, and let, let those chips fall where they may. Well, I don't think you guys are wrong. I think in some sense, um, although to to maybe the average person or the average parent that hasn't been deep in this, this again, this it seems somewhat opaque, but it seems fairly transparent to me when we go back and you dissect really what what's being presented to kids in school. It just it seems very transparent. So I, I have about 10 more minutes uh, and I want to try and get to some of these questions. So I've got three hands that are up. Let's start with I think it's the honey badger. <laughs> I don't. Uh, it's, yeah. Not- Thank, yes, thank you so much. Um, thank you for thank you so much for letting me speak. But I have a question for James. Um, if we could kind of pull it up into you know into the into this present time, um, because you know the things that you commented about um, in terms of communism and um, and then moving forward to how communism was learned through you know by Marxists that actually used it against them and how that became a circular like you know sort of a circular like a dog dog chasing its tail if you will um, so if we could sort of fast forward to um, our education system and what and the main influence which you know everyone in the room understands that has been to university or understands the plight of university is built on postmodernism which again that was basically the sleight of hand um, that was come up with you know by French philosophers as you know, Jacques Derrida and Foucault, etc. You know, in other words, the like the world is built on power, and it's and it's based on the ideology of the of your is you know is where your power is acquired versus being the sovereign individual. You know, like being the best person that you can possibly be, 
um, you know, in the eyes of God, how you were created. So my point, my, my question is, do you think it was a mistake that that um, that postmodernism sort of took over our universities in the 70s? And what did you see the impact as it stands today for for education? I'm talking as fast as I can. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, so postmodernism is necessary to get this off the ground. If we were to get formal with what woke means, and we can trace this from Freire through Giroux to this guy Joe Kinchelow, that's the education track. Joe Kinchelow defines this thing called um, critical constructivist epistemology at some point not long before he dies. And so that combines the critical theory of the kind of Frankfurt School, these kind of dying out Marxists, and the social constructivist hypothesis of postmodernism into one kind of new uh, way of thinking about the world. And when I first stumbled upon that concept, uh, I thought, this is, wow, this is the academic definition of woke. It's critical constructivist epistemology. And so postmodernism becomes a necessary tool to to circumvent the fact, another fact that the, the Marxists and even neo-Marxists couldn't get around, which is that reality still exists. But if you bring in postmodernism. Now everything is an interpretation of reality, and every interpretation of reality is filtered through power. And power is is, is rooted in invested in kind of this weirdly Nietzschean self interest. Uh, it's a very kind of poison Marxist existentialist Nietzschean thing, all at the same time. That's also just kind of saying blah to the world. Uh, then what you can do is you can circumvent reality. I do not think it was a mistake that it took over our universities in the sense that I that it just happened. I think it was a very intentional move that it took over the universities. I think that feminist philosophers, in particular, bear virtually all of the blame for this. They wanted gender constructivism so that they could avoid the sex and gender roles that they were complaining about through the 40s with Simone de Beauvoir, who is the lover of Jean-Paul Sartre and all of this. They want this complete... Like separation of the reality of biological sex from what they call gender roles. And they want it so desperately, most of them being English professors, but in other departments as well, they want this so desperately that they wanted a full social constructivism of gender, and they pushed this social constructivism so hard that they appropriated those French philosophers, those postmodernists, Foucault very much in particular, but Derrida as well, much less Lyotard, who actually, if you read what he says, is offering kind of this nasty critique of postmodernity, or John Baudrillard, who's also offering a nasty critique of it, um, but they, they appropriated the theories of Derrida and Foucault to advance gender constructivism, which now, of course, has become women plus and feminism plus and trans, and we call it gender ideology or queer theory. And, you know, we see the catastrophe that that runaway train has taken over. And that constructivist thing became such a useful tool for identity politics, which are also rising out of the kind of neo-Marxist ashes from, from Marcuse's direction that we need to abandon the working class and go into the identity groups to find the revolutionary energy uh, that gets cobbled together in the educational milieu through Ferrari and Giroux and Kinchelow and these characters. I think that this is where you end up with the, the kind of mishmash of ideas that cares nothing at all about reality. We're, we're kind of in some sense, it goes purely Gnostic. It's about the pure immediacy of experience as filtered through the phenomenological, phenomenological interpretation and appearances of the world, which they call uh, lived experience. And, and, and then all of a sudden you're divorced from any, any tie, any last tie to reality, to truth, whatsoever. So I don't think any of this gets off the ground at scale without postmodernism, but I don't think it, I mean, it was a mistake that we allowed it to take over the universities, a grand mistake. Our universities could not have failed us more, more grotesquely than allowing this to take over by basically being unwilling to tell nasty women to shut the hell up and know they can't have their own department to do angry nonsense. 
Um, but it was not a mistake that they took over the university. They very intentionally took over not just English departments and then eventually gender studies, race studies, African-American studies, ethnic studies. All this late 70s started moving into colleges of education um, to, to retool education in this direction. So this was all a very – this is Rydoichki's long march to the institutions, which was the actualization of kind of him, him viewing what Mao was doing and what Antonio Gramsci had written and saying this is what we need to do, which Marcuse also directed. We need to get into the universities. We need to get into education at every level. This is what they said. And all those radicals who failed in the late 60s and early 70s all became ed activists. They all became secondary ed or K-12 activists and, and, and educators. And th this was all very intentional. But postmodernism is necessary. The greedy feminists who were so desperate to get gender constructivism off the ground appropriated it. They didn't even get a lot of it right. They seemed to have made a lot of it up for their purposes, imported this wholesale in the 1970s and 1980s it makes its way into critical race theory in the 1980s. It makes its way through, you know, all the manners of, of different uh, what we would call woke philosophies now. And it, it's absolutely crucial that they can divorce from reality and see every interpret everything about reality as an interpretation that's colored by power so that they can do what I call dialectical inversion, which is what I described with the SEL thing earlier. Everything that already happens is the thing we're describing. Everything is power dynamics at the end of the day. It's all about who gets to interpret it, and that's the function of power. So everything, what we're doing is exactly the same as what's already been happening. So we're doing it in an organized fashion where we know all the problematics give us the power. And that tool is the Gnostic trick. It's the same Gnostic trick going back to, you know, make Lucifer's a good guy, P.S. It's the same trick. We know your philosophy or your religion or your beliefs, and you got a pretty good piece of it. But there's a whole bunch more that we know that you don't know, the secret part, and that they don't want you to know. Or in Genesis 3, the serpent is telling Eve, there's a bunch more. You got a pretty good deal, but there's a bunch more out there, and I know about it, and I can tell you how you can know it. And God doesn't want you to know it because he's actually a bad guy. That's the same Gnostic trick. And this in the modern times is everything's power. So this is power. So we have a right to exercise power in a very left-wing Nietzschean way. Um, so, yeah, and that, that's postmodernism. Right. And so here we are today. This is my truth. That's the mantra of our, of our society. This is my truth. And that's exactly what you did. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. Thank you for the question. All right. Let's see. We've got three more hands up. I think closeted virologist. Um, I think you were. Hi. How are you? Good. 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 Um, so I, usually the space deals with vaccines, so I was going to bring up something related to that. But um, my background a little bit for the key speaker um, is in semantic realignment. I did some training in cognitive behavioral therapy, and one of my mentors, I don't know if you know, she's Dr. Patricia Allen. Um, back in the day, it's not called conversion camp. She used to have patients that would come in that were um, experienced a lot of pediatric trauma and then ended up, um, you know, being in very alternative lifestyles and being uh, kind of plagued with uh, um, lifestyles where they weren't really sure they were transitioning, non-binary, all these different aspects of what was going on in their personal life and were still very unhappy, very depressed, and very suicidal. Well, when they started to speak based on their actual biological gender, coming from a place of I think and I want, and the feminine energy came from a place of um, um, I feel and I know what I don't want, all of a sudden they started to go back to their original dominant um, gender and sex assignment. In other words, they were speaking like a man and they were acting like a man. They were speaking like a woman and they were acting like a woman. It's very fascinating, that research. She got her uh, thesis on it. I just wanted to know your thought process on that. Well, um, that's a little bit of a curveball. Let me let me see what I can say about that. Uh, 
I genuinely think that this trauma issue is actually kind of central and that what, I mean, I frankly, I've said this repeatedly that I think that critical theory was devised to make um, personality disordered individuals. It is in fact to cause the exact kind of cognitive situations, which SEL for uh, SDGs, in other words, overcoming and inducing and overcoming cognitive dissonance in order to lead people in a particular direction of thought is, uh, is, is designed to do. I actually think that they are looking to create psychological trauma that they can then exploit to lead people in particular directions. And I also think, therefore, that the solution to the problem is exactly what they should be doing, what would be happening anyway, is that the adults in the room, if they were actually adults in the room, would be grounding people back in reality. When we look at the trans issue, you know, these kind of, as you said, kind of alternative or, or very confused or dysphoric lifestyles that people end up in or circumstances that they end up in, what's failing to happen under the programs that they're using and they're using this as an as an opportunity to induce people into queer gnosis into into queer gnostic thought uh, under the auspices of queer theory which leads them into the woke uh, the whole woke program and i could go on and on about how i think the race stuff sets that up and so on but what they're doing is they are not grounding these people back in reality they're not actually using tools that we know reconnect people to reality they in fact are doing the opposite they are dragging them further away from reality and making reality less accessible to them um and i think that that's kind of the core of how all of this works if you look at the kind of criticism the unity criticism unity formula their criticism and struggle uh, self-criticism model at the heart of the engine of that program what you see is this constant pressure to make you doubt your understanding of reality, of social reality and reality as it is around you and the, the way that everything should work constantly undercut you. That's the criticism, the struggle. You're constantly undermining people's intellectual authority, moral authority, psychological authority, so they don't know which way is up. And then you point them into the direction of, hey, we all think this way now, and you should too. And that's the supposed to be the resolution. In other words, they induce them into the cult. So I think that we see with that not just a mechanism, but we also see a pathway to a solution, which is maybe it's the, the specific techniques you were describing. But in any case, what it always has to be is that, especially with these gender dysphoric kids, is how do we pull them back to reality? Uh, at the end of the day, if you're in a if you're male, you're male. If you're female, you're female. And let's start there and start building up. Um, I don't know what the the, the nitty gritties look like, but what we see with like, what is gender affirming care? This is an obvious BS word. Uh, what does it mean? Well, it means not grounding these people back in reality, but in, inducing them further into fantasy, uh, destructive fantasy, as a matter of fact. And the the literal opposite of that, whatever the correct techniques might be, has to be the pathway out of those woods. So, James, the, the programming that, you know, I was trained in is, you know, to, to male children, you, you ask them what they think and what they want, starting from age of three years old. And for the female children, you ask them how they feel and they respond with what they don't want. And it basically pushes them back into their gendered roles. And then as they grow up, unless they're obviously if they're children and they're crying or vomiting or sick, you can ask how they're feeling from the male perspective, but otherwise you keep them in the side of their brain that, that genders them according to their biological sex. And then you don't play around with words. The minute the words change in schools is when what we call conversational rape occurred. And then you've now misgendered your own children by confusing them, by making them into essentially, you know, feeling and wanting at the same time, which is where you get the binary issue. And this is something that's, you know, if you look, look at the book Biology of Love or Evolution of Biology, um, all of that comes from a semantic realignment, basically. It's, it's, it's the language they're using in schools and in colleges that's confusing our children. And that's, you know, standard Freudian, uh, Freudian uh, um, 
um, history of just the, the psychology and psychiatry of, of, of child rearing essentially is what's occurring. So I definitely agree that they're doing this through linguistic manipulation primarily to confuse their ability it's, to, it's com- NLP. to, to it's comprehend reality. It's a high reality. level of NLP what's going on. So, yeah. So Thanks. Th- thank you for that question. That was fantastic. Um, let's see. I have two more. Um, Jordan and Nathan, there was a gentleman. It looks like he just dropped off, so we'll stick with you guys. So let's go with Jordan, and then we'll go to Nathan. Jordan, it looks like you're muted. There you go. Hey, sorry about that. I was uh, cooking dinner at the same time. Um, so I, I, uh, I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, James, hi, how are you? Um, I have a question, though. Can we name the enemy as to how we can actually solve the problem? Paulo Freire was an early uh, UNESCO or United Nations appointee <clears throat> working with the World uh, the World Committee on uh, Christianity, I believe, or churches. I'm sorry. Um, World Council of Churches, yeah. Thank you. Uh, SDGs also being produced along uh, along with ESG, uh, an affiliation with the United Nations. Um, should this entity exist on American soil, uh, if it does, to what extent should it be completely separated from any sort of governmental intervention? Um, is it worth pursuing this politically, uh, getting this into, into the conversation to separate uh, United United States from any agenda affiliated with the United Nations? Thanks. I think that's the most direct path, actually, other than this First Amendment thing. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to have to be done. I don't refer to the United – maybe I'm just being lib when I do this, but I don't refer to the United Nations as the United Nations anymore. I just call it the Fourth International, which is the the Fourth International Communist Party. Um, it's where I see kind of the headquarters of, of, of doom really happening. And I think, like you said, the World Economic Forum is largely designed to facilitate the UN agenda. Uh, I don't think it necessarily started that way, but it's certainly become that. And if you wanted this, I don't know what the fallout would be. And I'm not saying it's a wise political maneuver to do it bluntly and stupidly, but pulling the United Nations or pulling United States out of the United Nations and pulling all of the funding, which is the majority of its funding out uh, and separating for that institution as completely as possible and kind of as clean a cut as possible would do more damage to this um, to this ideology and this push than anything, any other single decision that you could possibly make. Uh, the emanating source of virtually all of this, if not the CCP, which is wound up in it, is the United Nations. And um, the United States saying, no, we're not doing this anymore. We're out. <laughs> The political fallout would be tremendous. I think that they would declare war on the United States and say that we've lost our minds, and that might not be something that you just want to do kind of stupidly. But um, And Trump did, by the way, pull us out of a lot of the UNESCO stuff and maybe the UNESCO agreements, but Biden put us back in uh, just in December, actually, it was finalized. So pulling out of those things is, is, a, is a crucial component at some stage or another, by some means or another, how quickly, how bluntly, how violently or whatever it has to be done. I don't mean violently, literally. I mean, in the sense of political upheaval um, is an open question as far as my understanding goes. But I think separating, if you wanted to ask me, if you put me on a stage and said, you have 20 seconds to tell people how to solve this problem, what is it? It's cut off the United Nations would be the only thing that I say. Four words or whatever that works out to be. Five. All right. Lastly, I think oh, we had, I think Nathan had a question. Yes, can you hear me? And then that, I can, and then that'll wrap it up. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, thank you, James, for, for all your work. Um, you actually inspired me to have confront the principal of our K through eight school and had a long conversation with him about a year ago who's starting to, he, he's 
came on a few years ago, but he started introducing some kind of radical ideas and it's gotten really bad over the last year. Um, SEL seems like kind of a joke, but there's no homework anymore because it's not available. You know, they're on like a kindergarten grading scale all the way through eighth grade and um, education's just gone completely downhill. So we're actually pulling out our fifth grader. But um, one, there's one thing I, I just wanted to put on your radar or ask you about. I don't know if you've heard of this, but he rolled out something called a personal learning community, um, LLC. And I think I, I haven't really dug that deep into it. I don't think anyone has. But of course, he had a big sales pitch for it. And a lot of the teachers are missing class time because they're going to these workshops and trainings and this idea of like we're all learning together and all a bunch of that BS. So I, I didn't. Is, is this something you've heard of or have any? No, I'm going to confess that I learn. I swear, even at this point, I learn a new acronym almost every day from these people. Um, professional learning community is not something that I've heard of, so I should probably look into it or get somebody to look into it for me. Um, it sounds exactly like what it sounds like. You know, it's another excuse for more consultants, for more kind of uh, this nonsense kind of kumbaya training where everybody comes together and they feel good and they learn some new brainwashing techniques or whatever. Uh, but I, I don't know anything about it specifically, unfortunately. Like I said, I actually probably literally come across, to not exaggerate at all, it's probably at least once or twice a week I come across some new acronym that these people have come up with that I've never heard of and some new idiotic concept that's been employed kind of at s modest or mo sometimes huge scale that somehow it's just impossible to track all of. So that one's new on me. If anybody in here has the wherewithal, they should go look into this because I'm one dude in and it's hard to look into all this stuff. Well, James, this has been uh, a really unbelievable uh, Twitter Spaces event for us. It's probably one of my favorite. Obviously, you know, Unity Project up to this point has been pretty heavily focused on what's happening as it relates to the vaccines. But, you know, as, as you know, we're, we're discussing now everything that's impacting parental rights and medical freedom. And, of course, this is clearly the root of the issue, in my opinion, that's, that's affecting uh, parental rights. This is this is how it's happening. This is the mechanism by which they're doing it. And so I'm so grateful for all the time that you've invested over two hours tonight um, on this topic. And I think you've made a, um, a best friend for life in Aaron Cariotti, <laughs> who I think is um, jumping back on. So we'll just have some potential closing remarks. Aaron, I listed you as a speaker. I don't know if you... There we go. So... We're just going to wrap it up. Aaron, did you have anything else that you wanted to connect with James on? No, this was great. Thank you, James, for being so generous with your time. Uh, apologize for, to the audience for lots of philosophical mumbo in this, but hopefully you, you picked up the basic thread of, um, you know, the, the key issues at work here. And um, it seems like this is a topic that we need some more spaces on to just continue unpeeling the layers of the onion uh, that James described, to use his metaphor, and continue unpacking uh, this enormously powerful movement in education that really needs to be stopped, needs to be understood uh, and confronted. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, thank you to all of the speakers. And James, I'm so grateful for everything that you do, every, all the support that you've given to the Unity Project. And I'll give a shout out to Moms for Liberty, who's also a strategic partner of the Unity Project. Um, for those of you that are not following their work, go, go check out what they're doing because it's pretty incredible. And um, everyone have a fantastic evening. Thank you, James. Can I throw a postscript on all this since you guys usually do the vaccine? And I think this Let's is important. It. Let's do the it. The vaccine's not different. It, this is the same. 
they do the exact same thing. So even with under under the rubric of social emotional learning, with the concept of responsible decision making being one of the five competency areas, of course they're going to define responsible decision making and brainwash your kids into thinking that if the CDC says you have to take this injection, you have to take this injection right now. Um, of course they are. The mass conditioning campaign that they put on the American population that resulted in 70% of the population or thereabouts getting vaccinated use these exact same techniques. You are a member of the initiated good people category who understand the world rightly if you do this and only if you do this and you are a you know deplorable demon suffering a evil awful winter of dying and disease and death who's caused a pandemic of the unvaccinated if you're not participating it is exactly the same program and they that's without having to get into how they rolled this thing out with equity at the forefront and all this kind of really awkward upside down racial stuff that really blew up in their faces because Gnostics tend to be kind of morons. Um, this is the exact same thing. If you think that the vaccine and woke and social emotional learning and ESGs and SDGs, that those are separate issues, they're not. They're identical issues. The vaccine is just one vehicle by which they push the exact same responsible consciousness onto people. It could get categorized under responsible social behavior and environmental behavior under the ESG and also self-governance behavior. So ESG could have applied and probably did apply to this. It's not separate. It's identical. It's the same cult. It's the same thing. It's just a different vehicle or a different arm of the exact same mentality with the exact same purposes, with the exact same um, actual tools and structure. Like I said, responsible decision making, self-management or whatever, social awareness, social relationship management or whatever the different castle things. Any of those could have been retooled and did, I'm sure, get retooled to encourage vaccination in children who, uh, you know, that's a crime against humanity. We'll just say it bluntly. Right. Well, that's why you see things like questions in a government class. Do you trust the CDC? And you have children being told in schools, um, who's a hero today who went out and got vaccinated and saved their family? And I mean, we could spend we could spend another five hours talking about the examples that we've seen in the school system as it relates to COVID and, you know, everything from the uh, separating of classrooms based on who's vaccinated versus who's not to mm -hmm. um, you will get a prize to schools in California um, saying to children in a socioeconomic area that is um, very, very poor, that has uh, children most likely would not be receiving Christmas presents, lining these kids up and saying, if you get vaccinated from uh, when the vaccine ban comes today, you will get a chance to see Santa and get a present. Um, I mean, like I said, we could spend five hours on that. And I yeah. absolutely like, agree with you is 100 uh, percent crimes against humanity. And the sad thing is that they will continue to do this in schools um, and, and they're doing it every single day. That's and right. I, that's right. I agree. It is. It is all part of the same vehicle. The Kathy Hochul thing that God himself wanted people to get vaccinated and you need to go become a soldier for the governor of New York yeah. saying that God himself wanted people to be vaccinated. And you need to be a soldier for God to go get more people vaccinated yeah. as literally the equivalent of like a uh, like almost Catholic sacrament. Narcissism, or baptism yeah, or Narcissism is religion. And let me just punctuate that point because you're you, you probably saw my emojis 100 percent right, of course, on this issue, James. Um, <laughs> You know, my head's exploding. I lost my job for defending the principle of informed consent against vaccine mandates. I was a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California. So this is obviously this is an issue very, very dear to my heart. Um, but and can I just add really quickly, Aaron, um, just so you know, James, not only was he a professor of medicine, he was in charge of medical ethics. So this is squarely in the heart of what he 
taught for years. Sorry, no, Aaron, I didn't mean yeah, to thank you for catch that. off because I think that's very thank important. That. Um, so I, I, I had professional credibility, but I didn't have Gnostic uh, credibility. <laughs> I wasn't a Gnostic initiate, so they kicked me, they kicked me out of the cult. But but another Gnostic, neo-Gnostic religion that's analogous to these others that we've talked about today, including SEL, is scientism. Uh, not science, which is a method of inquiry, but scientism, which is an ideology. And I, I, I talk about scientism as a Gnostic ideology in my book called The New Abnormal. So apologies for the shameless, shameless self-promotional mm-hmm. book plug at the end of the Twitter spaces. It's a great but, but that, you know, that is, this is a pervasive ideology that continues to inform these multiple domains of our public life. And we talked about it today in terms of education, but it was operating throughout the pandemic also in terms of public health in exactly the way that James just described. Absolutely. Any, any final comments? No, because if I, I don't have any more, actually, but if I thought of one, we'd probably end up in another 20 minute tangent. I thought <laughs> um, it was just really important to tie this vaccine thing. And scientism actually is what we're talking about. The, the Gnosticism in the modern era is primarily scientific in its formulation. Like I said, Hegel called it a system of science. Marx called it scientific socialism. Um, they say it was the true scientific principles. And now it's this weird technocratic cult of the experts or whatever who are the true scientific or whatever, uh, scientists or something, but uh, scientismists. That, but it's it's fake science. It's believing that the cult doctrine is the true interpretation of real science. It's again that understanding is the low level. That's actual science, and then there's the higher level epistemé or vernunft or reason or whatever that or critical interpretation that contours it to the to the science of right human relations. In Alice Bailey's words, so the. Aaron's exactly right in characterizing it this way. And so believe science, follow, you know, I believe science. I, this whole nonsense we saw with it is just another aspect of this exact same thing, this exact same mentality. And so your so-called branch Covidian friends or whatever we jokingly call them um, have been induced by primarily rampant manipulation of their fear into a cult and into rampant manipulation of their sense of social responsibility into a cult. And, um, that's dangerous. It's it's not easy to get people out of cults. And we see people still with masks yelling at people and, you know, whatever, you know, it's very strange behavior uh, that has nothing to do with reality because they've adopted this scientific belief. So it's important to understand these concepts. They are a little bit heady, but um, it, it clarifies, I mean, it's simple, one word, cult. Uh, it clarifies what we have to, to do to start unwinding this and to start holding the leaders of this cult accountable so that the thing itself can start to fall apart and we can actually start to deprogram the people who have been ensnared by it, who, by the way, are not our enemies. They are victims of this cult in one way where we outside of it are victims of this cult in a different way. That note, I, again, I'm incredibly grateful, James, uh, as always, you are uh, an amazing speaker and I learn so much every time uh, we listen to your speaking, we engage in any activity with you. So thank you again. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Uh, we will, this has been recorded and we will make sure to post it on unityproject.org.
we will make sure to post it on unityproject.org.